Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Just try it and you'll see. You'll be so much better in a year. Today, my guest is James Altucher. If you're listening to this on James's feed, welcome. James is an amazing human being. Who am I really? A next level thinker, an investor, entrepreneur, author, stand-up comedian, former hedge fund manager, also a podcaster regularly in the top 100. I used to crush you. Who's interviewed just about everyone. Mark Cuban, Coolio, Ariana Huffington, Draymond John, Supreme Court justices, all the mega business CEOs, moguls, entertainers, like I said, everybody. There's really nothing else. In this conversation, he shares his perspective on striving to be 1% better each day, strategies he's used to be a great interviewer, including how to effectively interrupt people, like when he interviewed Coolio... And Coolio was talking about crack cocaine. Now what do you do? I asked James to share his view of spirituality, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And he talks about that and how we can discover who we really are. He talks about why he gave away everything he owned and spent nearly three years living only in Airbnbs. Correctly so. He also shares some of the best advice I've ever heard about marketing your creative work. Are we talking specifically about writing? James has written more than 20 books, including Choose Yourself, Choose Yourself Guide to Wealth, Reinvent Yourself. He's the only person I know who can use the word ugh in conversation and make it work. I, I, I would say I 95% do it for the exercise. James, thank you so much for sharing so graciously of your time, your wisdom, your experience. And for everyone who's listening, thank you for tuning in. I hope you get to see a side of James that you maybe don't when he's on the other side of the microphone. I don't care at all. Please enjoy this long-ranging curiosity-following James Altucher style interview with James Altucher. James, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, uh, excited to be here. Yeah, I'm. I'm so glad you're here, James. You know, and I only. I don't really do that many podcasts. I don't like to go on other podcasts, but I've been. Uh, but again, I've been really excited to do this one. You, you know, you you're a good interviewer. You have a good podcast. You have, it seems like you have a very excited audience, and uh, I, I, you know, th this is the podcast I wanted to do. So I'm, thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you. Now your show is amazing, and the people you've interviewed, I mean, is the who's who: Mark Cuban, Coolio, Ariana Huffington, Peter Thiel, everyone, uh, just about, including Wayne Dyer, which I want to ask you about in a moment. But before I do, I want to start with my favorite question for Uber drivers: What's life about? Life's about living. There's really nothing else. Like every day you wake up and you can tell yourself, oh, my life's about getting a degree or my life's about getting a promotion or my life's about raising money for a political purpose or making money or raising my kids, which is probably a little closer to, to what, what life is really about. But most of those things I just listed are very man-made things. And, you know, ra you know, you could say, look, I enjoy raising money and I believe in a political candidate, so I'll raise money for them. Or, or you could say, I want to make money because I think that will give me freedom. But again, 
what is freedom to you that has my has different definitions for each person uh so that you know and how are you making money if you enjoy what you're doing then you already have freedom while making money so you know it's again all of these things are are man-made definitions and human beings are just one species among like 50 trillion on the planet and you know that's life life is is everything that lives and and what i try to remind myself is how can i make how can i make each experience an experience worth living an experience that i'm fully inhabiting and and either learning from or or you know i'm i'm somehow the experience is ex- expanding my consciousness and knowledge of life in in some way or 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 is fascinating in some way or satisfying my curiosity in some way and i think if you consistently do that then everything else sort of falls out from that like your 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 success however you define that your freedom however you define that your friends and connections however you define that your your well-being yeah sorry if that was a, a more esoteric answer no now i find myself wondering well, it's like, yeah, that resonates with me. And it's um, totally what I want. And I find myself asking, now, how? Well, uh, can I give you an example from my, like, I'll give you a much more specific example. Please. So, so let's say, let's say I want to watch something funny. I can go on YouTube and I could find, let's say, my favorite stand-up comedian. And I could watch a YouTube clip for 10 minutes and he'll have some jokes and maybe I'll laugh a little bit. Fine. But let's say I want to go what why would I then want to go to a stand-up comedy club when I could just watch stand-up comedians on YouTube? So let's say one I'm going to make the metaphor one experience going to the stand-up club is living and watching a YouTube clip is kind of just a uh, secondhand living. You know, you're just sort of sitting on the couch watching a YouTube clip. You're not really having a, an experience. Your, your your experience is just living life behind a screen. Right. So so when I'm performing stand up comedy, so now I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an author, I'm an investor, but I for fun, I like to perform stand up comedy. And I don't like to just go on the stage and tell jokes because I know everybody who paid for a ticket in the audience they could just be at home watching a YouTube clip. So I want to give them an experience they can only get if they came out to that club I'm performing at on that particular night for those particular, you know, 15 minutes or a half hour or whatever that I'm that I'm performing. So so when you think of everything as you know, I'm not just delivering one kind of message in one kind of way i'm deliver uh, i i, I want to to live life fully i want to create the experience around me i want to be a part of i want to create it i want to infuse it with as as much life as possible you know you mentioned before what is living it, the the experience i'm in is not just me passively experiencing something it's also me contributing to that experience to bring it more alive and you know, and I, I think this has analogy to, you know, traditional business. Like when you go to a clothing store, what what happens? There's no reason anymore 
to go to any physical retail location because you can order everything online. So uh, I'm just using the clothing business as an example. A clothing store, a successful clothing business has to realize that and they have to realize that what they are delivering to the customer now is not just clothes, but if someone walks into their space, then you're delivering a very a unique experience in that physical space. Like maybe it's, you know, the 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 salesperson, you know, is is a uniquely qualified, you know, uh salesperson and can help you pick out the right clothes for you and really excite you about an event you're going to and what clothes you should wear and and so on. Maybe they offer you a glass of champagne in some stores. Maybe they, you know, uh again, help you pick out a gift, you know, in, in, in a way that you haven't thought of and call up other stores and recommend other places. And I don't know, again, it's all about c- delivering uniqueness that you can't get anywhere else. And, uh, you know, I'm, uh, so I'm giving, I'm giving specifics, but, but, but the way you kind of practice this skill, like how do I, how do I deliver something unique? Well, you can't, you can't, do it by like let's take writing as an example. If all so there's many writers who are great writers and well-known writers, and I I won't say their names, but I don't really like them because let's say they're professors of writing and all they do is just sit behind a desk and write. Well, that's great, and that'll help them improve at the skill of writing, but it won't give them a life to to write about. You have to you have to live life in order to in order to write now. I still think the skill of writing is an important skill to develop and you need to practice that skill every day just like you know you need to exercise or whatever you do every day to to stay in good health you need to eat good food every day whatever but um uh, uh you need to also go out and live life so how do you do that well every day you should nurture your connections and your network so that means every day just slightly tweaking the maybe the toxic people around you slightly tweaking you know and bringing up the the positive or good people around you uh that's one way another way is f- what what do you love doing what do you what 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 skill do you love getting getting better at well what are you going to do today to improve slightly even 1% at that skill and now i always say 1% a day is about 3,800% a year. So think about that. If you improve at something 1% per day, you'll be 38 times better at, in a year. Now, people say, oh, no, your math wrong. is 365%. No, compounded, just go into a compound calculator. It's, it's 38 times better. Now, uh, what if you want to get better at tennis? It's hard to quantify. What does it mean 1% a day better? Well, just try it and you'll see. You'll be so much better in a year your friends will be like, didn't I just play you? How come I'm losing to you now? I used to crush you. Now you're crushing me. That will happen every single time. So that's number two is improvement. Number three is freedom. What does freedom mean? It means every day try to have slightly greater percentage of the choices that you make, choices that come from you rather than come from the agendas of someone else. Like if your boss says, I need these things filed, that's his choice instead of your choice. If you say, hey, I have this great new idea for the business. Can I do it? Now you're making a choice and you're directing the compass of your life. So I'm not saying in one day go from zero to 100. 
So everything is just a little by little. It's just all practice. And these three things, do it. Hi, this is Dallin, and I'm the producer for the School for Good Living podcast. And I'm just taking a brief moment of your time to share a special message from Brian to you. If you ever feel lost or stuck, if you're looking for a coach or a community, if you want clarity and some accountability for yourself, if you're looking to take your life to the next level, to get off whatever plateau you might find yourself stuck on, head on over to goodliving.com and check out the 36-week online Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching. It's designed for anybody who's looking to take their life to the next level. Many people are stuck in unrewarding jobs, lonely or unfulfilling relationships, or resigned to live without experiencing all they can be, do, have, and give. The School for Good Living offers transformational personal coaching for those who are ready to break free, find clarity, and create a new life full of happiness, meaning, and contribution. The School for Good Living also offers a coach training program, a two and a half day in-person coach training program that's designed to help you be a great coach and get paid. Visit goodliving.com. And now, back to the show. I love what you're saying, too. It really resonates with me in this idea of being a participant, being an actor in your life, not a spectator, not having a passive orientation to these things. And life is a process. And you're right. I th- we're all a part of it. And we can either be passive and live that life from, you know, the, the stands, or we can be on the court and engaged in, in the game. Yeah, like uh, I'll, I'll give you, and this is a, an important example for writers. Let's say um, you write a book and a publisher, one publisher asks to see it uh, and and you get all excited and you tell everyone, oh my gosh, this big publisher just asked to see my book. I'm so excited. And you send, you, 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 re, you edit your book. It takes months. You send it to the publisher and every day you're waiting for this great phone call from the publisher and you could picture it like the publisher is going to call me and say, I'm going to give you a million dollars and we're going to put this book in every Walmart and it's going to be a bestseller. It's going to be on the bestseller list and you're waiting every day, every day and no, there's no phone call. And, and you're thinking to yourself, why aren't they calling me? Don't they, don't they realize how rude this is? I work so hard on this book. Of course, they don't think about it at all. It's much more important to you than it is to them. That's just the nature of, I call it the law of, entrepreneurial relativity, your product is much more important to you than to whoever you're delivering it to. They don't care as much as you do. So, but eventually, three months later, the publisher calls and rejects your book. Now, what do you do? You can either be disappointed and and cry for months. And I've seen people do this. People have been disappointed and have cried for, for months. Or you could say, okay, that publisher rejected it. I'm gonna make a list of all the people, all the agents, and all the publishers, and I'm gonna also, uh, and I'm gonna, and I'm gonna make a list of all online publications where I can maybe write articles about publishing, or I could submit a chapter of my book, or I can write essays, and I'm gonna do all these things to create this whole environment where publishers or agents are going to start calling me or maybe I'm going to reach out to other agents that I know or a friend of a friend of a publisher that I know so so you start this happened to me this happens to me all the time this happened to me just last week so I was depending on one person for a certain opportunity that person wasn't being responsive so every day I wrote to two or three other people and figured out other ways to get a similar opportunity happening for me 
And lo and behold, I had more opportunities than I could possibly handle. Like I, my schedule for this sort of activity became overloaded. And, uh, and that's what you do. That's how you, again, not be dependent on someone else for your agenda, not be dependent on someone else for your happiness, for your well-being, for your success. You choose the, the pathways to your success. And you can't choose the outcomes but you could choose uh all, all you you could choose how much you rely on others for your success yeah and and this is something that you speak i mean this if anybody said this it would sound good but it it lands differently when it's said by you where you know you've spent six years prior to your move in new york city writing novels and stories that were rejected by every publisher journal and agent you sent them to yeah hundreds hundreds of rejections over yeah over more than half a decade plus now you know with your book choose yourself obviously that's a central concept and you're sharing it here but i mean this is this is what makes a life right the difference between a life that's extraordinary and a life that sucks but how did you make that i mean how did you arrive at this concept of choose yourself i got you know so many different ways it's it's everyone can relate to this where you work really hard on something or you pitch an idea or you just want a promotion so you can make a higher salary to pay your bills and one person or two people they just for whatever reason they say no it could be arbitrary could be they were having a bad day and your and the decision about you came up you know, and, and I remember once this happened to me so many times. I remember once, uh, 1997, I was pitching a TV show to HBO or 1998, one of those, one of those years, uh, 1997. And there was, there was one person, HBO was the only, there was no such thing as reality TV then. There was like the real world on MTV, but then HBO had Taxi Cab Confessions, they had other reality shows you know, kind of documentaries that verged into what is now called reality TV. And I was pitching sort of one of these types of, of brand new reality shows. And it was great. I thought it was great. And the one person in charge of the, making the decision, she loved it. She gave me money to shoot a pilot. And then when it came time to green light it as a series, she said no. And the reasons really probably had nothing to do with the show. There was there were reasons, there were many reasons that had nothing to do with me or the show or anything. And I ran into her recently, uh, like 20 years later, and she said, you know, I made a mistake. I always knew you were going to have the, the good ideas. I should have placed my bets on you. And, and I knew even then I was making a mistake. And, but that was 20 years ago. What, what good does it do me now? And yeah, and so... I, you know, when you have, or let's say I'm pitching a, a, a big investor. So one in a completely different life, you know, several years later or many years later, I was running a hedge fund and I, I visited with uh, one of the biggest hedge funds in the world. And, uh, this guy liked me. We got along, we, we hung out, he gave me a tour of his whole, you know, fund and everything. And I, and he said, okay, so James, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I have this hedge fund and I invest money, you know, all over the place. I have, I have good returns. And, and he said, James, I'm going to stop you right there. 
I would love to, to I would love it if you worked for me. You could have a job here anytime you want, but I don't know where you put where you invest your money, and we already have good returns. And you know, I don't know what you do with the money outside of here. I don't like to let the money loose without me knowing what's going on. And the last thing we need here at Bernard Madoff Securities is our name on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. So Bernie Madoff rejected investing money with me. At the time, nobody knew he was a scam. And I remember being all depressed. Like I thought this was my one shot to raise like a significant amount of money. And and also, I, I thought to myself, how can I even compete with him? Again, I didn't know he was a, a legal, a scam. So I ended up starting the process of shutting my hedge fund down because of this. Because I, you know, so one guy, I let him have a lot of power over whether I even stayed in business or not. And I just had so many of those situations, not one, not two, not five, not 20, hundreds. And, you know, you, you build a company, you want someone to buy it. They say maybe, and then they say no. Oh, I'm so disappointed. I was tired of those disappointments. And so I really wanted to set up my life and build my life. And again, it's a little bit at a time. It's not tomorrow. It's a little bit at a time. I wanted to set up my life so that any one person's no would not affect me. In fact, I got so used to hearing no that I, as a reflex now, I always view it as an opportunity to find even a greater yes. That's a really... I want to say mature, but I think it's um, enlightenment is probably the word. But I still get disappointed with the nose. But now I just I, I I take a step back and I say, okay, this is another opportunity for me to follow my own advice. Don't wimp out here. Don't beg for the yes. Just start diversifying the pathways you're taking for success. Again, like last week, I I, I needed something done. I wasn't getting it. One person was sort of in the way. Uh, and so I diversified. I started contacting other people and for other similar opportunities. And bam, good things happened. At first, I was disappointed. At first, I was like, why isn't this happening? And I was upset. But I said, okay, take a step back. Do what you always say you're going to do. Do what you always do. Choose yourself. I'm, I'm getting that feeling again, that constriction in my chest where I'm not choosing myself. I'm, letting, I'm hoping for someone else to choose me. I've got to take that back. There's always a way to choose yourself. Might not, it would have been easy if this person had said yes, and I wouldn't have to do this, and I don't know how long it will take for me to get around and choose myself, but this is what I have to do if I'm going to succeed. Yeah. This, this feels to me like a variation on, Steve, on the theme of you know, Steve Martin's be so good, you know, they can't ignore you or just be so good. You'll yeah. never be denied. And and I think about the saying, you know, Alice Walker talking about the, the most common way people give up their power is by believing they don't have any. That is such a great quote. I did not know that quote. Thank you. Yeah. And here you are just with the tenacity and the persistence and the vision and the commitment or whatever. And, you know, some of, but, but by the way, it's a, it's a good point because she's right. Because as soon as you as soon as you're depending on someone else to to sort of choose your success, you don't have any power. The other person has all the power, and and you and and that's true. You really don't have any power. You have to work. You have to earn earn the power, and and that's hard every single time. And it's and here I am, you know, 
20 years later, 25 years later, or 28 years later after first writing, you know, a story down. And it's still every week looking for ways to always reclaim my own power. Yeah. Okay. I have so many questions I want to ask. I'll ask this one about Wayne Dyer because you talk about a few years ago. Now it's, of course, he passed away a few years ago. So maybe more than just a few that you were preparing to interview Wayne and you knew that Wayne was a, a talker and that if you were going to be effective in your interview, you were going to need to learn the skill of interruption. Yeah. Right? And I think you're a master at this in your own podcast where people are sharing that you're able to go in and anticipate what the listener is going to want to hear and ask a question at just the right point. I mean, the right question at the right time. Will you share with me what did you learn either in preparation for that conversation with Wayne or since then about the skill of interrupting effectively? Well, let's so so Wayne was very gracious. He I don't think he ever did any other podcasts except mine. He died shortly after my podcast and I interviewed him in 2013. I think we released the podcast in in January or February 2014. Um but I had a backlog uh before I launched the podcast. And uh, I knew Wayne because we we both had the same publisher for for one of my books. I had a book called The Power of No, and uh, it was published by Hay House. Hay and he House. had The Power of Intention, so they were right on the shelf together. <laughs> right, exactly. And uh, uh, so I knew his I knew his publisher very well. I had also I was also doing a radio show for Hay House, and I had his daughter on my radio show. So it's again one of those things you diversify all of your approaches into a in, in into getting access to somebody because Wayne was very hard to to get a hold of. But you know to prepare for him, I mean, there's a lot of ways I prepare for any guest. But I I watch videos. I watch his. You know, he did all these all this stuff for PBS. Uh, all this you know fundraising and gave like hours and hours of talks for PBS. He's also... I love something I read on your blog about when you're interviewing someone, you want them to feel like they're in therapy, like you've researched and prepared so well. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, it's always the best thing for me when a guest says, um, oh gosh, you got me with that question. I feel like I'm in therapy now. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. uh, But with Wayne, I was really nervous because he was probably my first guest where I wasn't kind of personally a, a friend with. Um, you know, I think at that point I had Tim Ferriss, Tucker Max, Ryan Holiday. I had a I had a bunch of guests who are, you know, well known, but Wayne I didn't really know. Uh but I read a lot of his books. He's written a lot of excellent uh self help books and they're not they're not as new agey as one might think. Uh but I think they're 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 very good. And but I knew people even told me Oh, don't worry about this podcast. Just ask him one question and he'll talk for an hour and then that's the podcast. And I'm like, no, that's not really that he could do that just by himself. It's not I want to make my podcast a unique experience for people. And so it's not interrupting. What it is is if he says something that makes me curious, then I'm then when else am I gonna ask Wayne Dyer a question? Like if he says, Oh, and then you know, I talked to President Clinton. Uh, I I'm curious, like, what did you just pick up the phone and call his cell phone, or what did you do? Like, how did that? Ha like, I'm curious. I could be curious about something stupid like that. But and and by the way, that wasn't that was actually the interruption for Tony Robbins. But uh, Wayne Robbins, Wayne Dyer had had. Uh, I was curious about different things. But uh, 
when else am I going to get the chance? It's not like the podcast is going to end. And then a week later, I'm going to call Wayne Dyer and say, Wayne, hey, buddy, uh, I just wanted to ask you how you got in touch with that, you know, or how you did this one thing. And uh, no, the only chance I'm going to have is that one hour I have with him. And I'm never going to get that chance again. And chances are, if I'm curious, the audience is probably curious also. Sure. So, I, so I'm so i trying to put myself in the minds of the audience. They're listening to the podcast with Wayne Dyer because they want their lives to be better. And they think, you know, with with good reason that listening to something Wayne Dyer says might improve their lives. Now, they could also just read his books. And if he's just talking, he's just going to say what, what he writes in his books. So I have to be curious. I have to read the books. I have to find things I'm curious about. Then if I'm asking about them, uh, I and, and he says something that's confusing to me, and by the way, I, I consider myself a fairly unintelligent person, I'm going to n- be curious and be confused about lots of things, so I'm going to ask. Like, I was talking to Coolio at one, uh, in one of my podcasts, you know, and he was a famous rapper from the 90s. In 1995, he had the highest, you know, selling song of 1995, for instance, Gangster's Paradise. And uh, I it was one. Of, it was my favorite song in 1995. So I was so happy to have Coolio on, and and I learned a lot of things in that podcast. But at one point he said, um, you know, and then he got this, you know, crack habit, you know, crack addiction, and then he got over that, and he started doing this, and then and I'm like, wait, 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 wait a second. How do you get over a crack addiction? Like, what did you do? Like, I was curious. I've never gotten over a crack addiction. Uh, I wanted to know how did he specifically do it like that? I'm never, I'm never going to call him up again and say, Coolio, what did you do to get over that addiction? The podcast is over now. Now you can just tell me it's just you and me. No, I want to find out on the podcast. Yeah. If you're ever going to call him up, you're going to talk about different stuff. You're not going to talk yeah. about crack with Coolio. After <laughs> I'm going to talk, <laughs> I'm going to talk about, uh, his recipes for cooking because you know, <laughs> Coolio is now a chef. He's on the food channel a lot. That's amazing. No, that that makes sense because then you're right. It feels less like interruption and more like following your curiosity. You know, and it's funny, though, at the beginning of my podcast, a lot of people would criticize and email me and say, James, let the guest finish talking. And so I guess I probably I don't know what happened because I don't get those emails anymore. Maybe it's because people are used to me doing it or maybe I got more skillful at fitting it in. Or maybe they just stopped listening. Yeah, <laughs> I doubt be, it, but maybe. Oh, oh no! You know, now that I'm thinking about it, you know what the big difference is? I do uh, almost a hundred percent of my podcasts, like ninety nine percent of my podcasts, I do face to face, and I think interruptions are more fluid face to face. You know, I ninety three percent of communication is supposedly nonverbal, and when you're face to face and in person with somebody, uh, you could there's a lot more signals with your body you sort of make when you're about to interrupt. And so people know, okay, they're going to start slowing down and it's a more natural flow. Yeah. Then it doesn't feel as awkward for sure. Okay. So talking about Wayne and I had some questions for you about spirituality and you have this whole concept you talk about in your book about multiple bodies, you know, the physical body, the emotional body, the spiritual body. But I am I was really curious about the fact that the number one search phrase on Google that took that takes people to your blog is I want to die, right? And things yeah. like I I hope to die, I want to disappear, you know, things like that. What is it do you think about you, your message, you know, the things you're saying, how you're saying whatever that is attracting that? I mean, what's that about? Well, I think you know, my my 
1998, I built up a company. Uh, I sold it. I made a lot of money. And then, uh, and I made enough money that I could have lived for the rest of my life and my children and their children could have lived for the rest of their lives. And instead of doing that, within one or two years, I was dead broke. Like I was just broke. I had, and when I say broke, it wasn't like I was bankrupt because I had no debt. I just simply had about $143 in my checking account. And that's it. After having tens of millions of dollars in my checking account. And, uh, you know, when you, and then after that, I wanted to learn what I did wrong. So I, I, I'm making a long, a very long story short, but I started investing. I started studying investing like obsessively. I started writing about investing because, uh, I wanted to write what I was learning in kind of real time. And I, then I started a hedge fund. I wrote some software for investing. I completely changed my investing. So I wouldn't, lose money hopefully the next time. And around 2009 or 2010, I was like, you know what? Screw it. I, I, you know, when you're, when you're in the investing business and the investing writing business, it's almost like you're not allowed to admit failure. I think it's a little more common now. And in part, I think that's because of, I don't, I don't want to take total credit, but I think people saw a lot of people who work at all the big business networks. I know them all personally. They would all read my blog. I think they saw me doing it and then kind of the success my writing had after that. And so I think it became more common to admit your mistakes and your failures. But at the time I was doing it, like 2009 or 2010, I was writing about, oh my gosh, I, I, went, I started this business. I went broke. Uh, I was suicidal. I was depressed. And then it happened again. And then it happened again. And then this happened. All these like bad, weird things happen over and over again. And uh, uh, and people would like really criticize me. Like, why are you writing like this? Like, why are you saying this? You're not allowed to say this. No one's ever going to invest with you again. But what ended up happening was people realized, oh my gosh, this guy is the real deal. He's authentic. He, he had experiences just like me. I mean, a lot of the people who were criticizing me would privately write me emails and say, Hey, I get it. I've been through that as well, but I just can't say it on TV. Um, and I would say it on TV. Uh, so everybody thought I was completely insane. And, you know, and I was writing about like specific articles about when I wanted to commit suicide. And so like if you Google it right now, in, if you put in quotes, I want to die and put that into Google, I don't know what number I am. I used to be the first result out of like 44 million and uh, Google pushed it down because so many people complained and they, they manually put the National Suicide Prevention Hotline up there, correctly so. And so I don't know where I am. It just depends on the person and whether they've searched me before and whether they've searched suicide before and what they clicked on and, and so on. But but I'm there. Uh, either the second spot, third spot, fourth spot, probably on the, the first page at the very least. But uh, so I think uh, I just wanted to have no BS. People don't really care whether they should buy Apple stock or not, or Microsoft stock, people want their lives to be better. And part of the way you reach people is by being authentic and by being vulnerable and by telling the truth. And that's, I I, I stopped writing really, uh, at least in my writing that is, is, you know, I put on all the websites and, and, and for the public, I stopped writing about, stocks or investments. And I started writing just about the things that 
I experienced that helped me. Notice I didn't start writing about things that will help you. I don't know what will help you, but I wrote about what helped me. And if people related to that and wanted to try it, they could try it too and see if it helps them. Experience is incontrovertible. So the fact that you're, you know, you're asking these questions, they're very personal. Someone once pointed out to me that the, the intimate is the most universal. So when you're taking what is true in your experience, what you've lived, and you're talking about that, and it's not spouting theory, you know, and whether people want to apply that or not and see if it works or not, and, and clearly it has for you, you know, it's, you're still alive. You're, you seem to be very successful. You're serving many others. I think uh, for many people, you're where they aspire to be, you know, and yet, as we know, life is not perfect. Um, I actually have a theory that it is. <laughs> it's just not our experience that it is. But with that, tell me how you think about spirituality. I know that's a broad question, but that's something I feel like our society doesn't really have an effective way of conversing about. And I think there's a lot of suffering that's going on that could be ameliorated. There's a fancy word that could be you know, eliminated if only we had a deeper understanding and application of principles related to spirituality. How do you think about it? Yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, s spirituality is also a weird word because it's an umbrella over so many different, are you talking about religion? Are you talking about new age kind of law of attraction? Are you talking about meditation and mindfulness? Are you talking about angels or, or, or astrology? Like, uh, I you know a lot of people say, oh, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. So there's a lot of like, dialogue around the word. But I think it really boils down to, uh, you know, the, the question, who, who are you? Like, you know, you're, you're, you're clearly not, you're, we, we, it, we kind of makes sense that you're not your body. You're not the person you see in the mirror. Your skin changes every seven years or like every single cell in your body is completely different. So, the cells you're wearing right now are not you because they're all going to, it's like you're changing clothes. Like your clothes are not you. Um, and your, your, your skin cells are just like your clothes. You're going to discard them after a while as well. And that thought, by the way, of really getting that every so often that our cells completely regenerate and that they're regenerated from the substances we consume, the food and other, you know, chemicals and whatnot. When I really connect with that thought, like that is astonishing. Like, yeah. what the hell am I if I'm not this body, right, that clearly is impermanent and regenerates of its own intelligence? Like, that alone is mind-blowing. Right. So then you might say, well, I'm my personality. But think about personality for a second. Like, let's say you drink some alcohol. Your personality might change. Might be You might be happier. You might be angrier. You might be violent. Um, but, you know, depending, again, on... The food you do, you take in the the uh, what kind of drugs you take, whether it's, uh, you know, so many people take antidepressants, so many people take Adderall, so many people take anti-anxiety, so many people drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes. Your personality is changed by these artificial substances you or or natural substances you you put in your body. So is your personality you, or like if someone makes you angry on a on a day that's a bad day for you you might get more angry than you're accustomed to is that your personality is that the real you like what's the who 
is it just a matter of your upbringing? Like if your upbringing was different, would your whole personality be different? So probably it's not your emotions or personality. That's also probably kind of clothes that you wear and you discard them. Like, you know, you spend one third of your life asleep. You don't bring the same personality of your day into your dreams. You often have a different personality in your dreams. You, You discard one personality, you go to sleep, you have another personality for the other third of the day. So, and and then the next day might be a Saturday. You might have a different personality on a Saturday than on a Tuesday. So who's who's you? And so, okay, so let's leave emotions and stuff like that. Well, is it your thoughts? Are your thoughts you? Well, the average person thinks about 60,000 thoughts a day. I don't know how they scientifically determined that, but they did. And we know what a thought is. Like, you know, neuroscience tells us that thoughts essentially originate in the brain for the most part, a little bit in the, in the gut, you have some neurons in your, and, and, and neurochemicals in in your gut, but most of your, your neurochemicals are originate in the brain. And, you know, we can see I, I, with, I don't know, with equipment, when neurons start firing and there's electrical activity in your brain, and if the electrical activity slows down, like for instance, if you're meditating or if you're watching TV or if you're asleep, then you're thinking less. Uh, And by the way, television and meditation probably put your brain in the same kind of pace of generating thoughts as opposed to like sort of running around New York City in meetings. So meditation, television, suddenly you're thinking instead of, you know, at a rate of 60,000 thoughts a day, maybe it's at a rate of 10,000 thoughts a day or 20,000 thoughts a day. But clearly... Your thoughts when you're watching TV is very, are very different than your thoughts when meditating. I, see, when I meditate, my thoughts seem to no, <laughs> proliferate. <laughs> you're all about Game of Thrones. and uh, So it's as if you're watching TV. But uh, my whole point is, is that your thoughts are not really you either. Like, yeah. Let's say um, I wake up and I'm angry at someone. And oh, why did this person do this to me? And so now, uh, 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 let's say a third of my thoughts that morning might be about thinking about this other person. Well, that's not my usual thoughts. That's not really me. So then who are you? We don't really have a real answer to this question. And probably because an answer involves words and involves thoughts. And we're already going at a deeper level than words and thoughts. So I think kind of sort of, I don't want to use the word meditation now, sort of like contemplating on this concept of like, who am I really? And thinking about that is is spirituality. So so you said uh, life is perfect. Well, if you get rid of the thoughts, the emotions, the body, uh, the, the culture and society around you, the physical things around you, everything kind of is perfect. We can't even like label it. It's, it's, there's, it's not quite that there's nothing because we're here. We know where we exist. But that's all we really know for sure is us, is that we exist. But we don't really know anything else. And so that's why I say, okay, now let's put on the physical body and make sure this is healthy. Now let's put on the emotional body, make sure this is healthy. Put on the mental body, make sure your neurons are firing at at your full potential. And then put on the spiritual body, which is this sense of surrender that none of this is really important, that we're here to just experience. Everything else is just kind of 
a, a, a recording machine. Your your body records what you what you put into it. Your emotions record, you know, what's what it, what they what that body is fed. Your mental body records what that's fed, whether it's books or people telling you things or you know your thoughts. And then your spiritual body is sort of kind of uh, you know something we don't quite understand. And it's all what what I think is the best is when everything is healthy then they're all connected and they're all working together. Your emotions feed your body, your body feeds your creativity. And we know this for a fact, like just, and as an extreme example, if you're sick in bed, you're probably going to be less creative than if you're healthy. If you're, if you're, if your spouse is supportive of your, your dreams and your efforts, and you're not arguing every day, all day long, you're probably going to be healthier. You're probably going to be more creative. So we know that these bodies are connected. And I think that's when they're fully connected up and flowing smoothly, as smoothly as possible. That's spirituality. That's, that's a way of connecting a little bit more to this deeper self that we, that we don't really understand. So that's kind of, and I hope that that answer doesn't sound, you know, woo woo. It's not really, it's all, most of it's science but we just don't, some things we just don't have the answers for. Absolutely. I love, I love the description too, by the way, in the interrelation between those different aspects of ourselves, the two things that stand out to me from when I hear you articulate it this way, one is about, and this is kind of an inquiry that I'm living now about this, who am I? And, um, you know, many spiritual teachers, especially in the Eastern traditions talk about this one question can carry you to enlightenment if pursued, you know, intensely enough or long enough about who am I? And really the seeming kind of miracle that anything we can say we are, we're not yet, you know, there's not the, there never yet for me anyway, seems to be the confirmation of what I am only what I'm not again and again. And then the other thing that stands out in what you said is this idea of these being recording, kind of recording machines or recording devices, these different bodies. And uh, immediately when you said that, I thought, yeah, I mean, clearly on the physical body, scars, you know, emerge and patterns of behavior, if especially it's more easy to see in instances of trauma where people shut down or start a new set of patterns. But then I find myself immediately going, wow, so where's the freaking eraser? you know, if it's a recording device. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's a recording device because maybe, I mean, now I'll just get into my science fiction like theory of this. Maybe there's just one huge consciousness and it sends out, it sends us all out. We're all part, we're all the same. We're all part of this deeper consciousness. That's why we can't put a label to pure existence and this consciousness just wants to keep learning. It's just constantly curious and it doesn't even know what it's learning. It just sends us all out. And then when we die, we go, we get absorbed back into that deeper consciousness, which is not a bad thing. Like everyone's so afraid. Oh, I'm going to lose my personality. I don't know. My personality is not so great. Like I'm frustrated a lot. Like I'm in, I don't, I, I, you know, I had, I, I'm doing this podcast. Um, but earlier this morning I had really bad news. Like, one of my best friends from uh, like this period from 1992 to 1998 uh, passed away uh, uh, last night, like very late last night, and I found out about it this morning. And um, one of the last things he told me, for, first off, it's a very sad thing. It was very sad for me. Yeah, um, I, I, I went through. No, 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 no. It's but 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 that's just it. Is that 
you know, he was in a lot of pain. He had known for years he this was going to happen to him. You know, things happen and and you get sad and 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 you move on and maybe now he's part of this bigger consciousness and experiencing things, but it's but one thing he told me was you can never mortgage your present moment. Well, what he said it about himself. He didn't give advice. He he said one thing that changed with him once he got this diagnosis uh, a few years ago was he stopped mortgaging the present for a future payoff. So you know how like if you're a guy, sometimes you're in the friend zone with a girl, and maybe if you keep hanging out and being nice to her, she'll eventually she'll realize how great you are and she'll love you and marry you. But at first, you're no, she's nowhere near that. She's going out with someone else, maybe. Um, hanging around, waiting for the, for her to love you, is mortgaging your present moment for a future payoff. That's a, an extreme example. I don't know how if that's appropriate or not. But uh, uh, that's what he was referring to specifically. Is that he doesn't he he stopped doing that in every area of his life. And I thought that's that's really important. And again. I'm sad that I will miss him, but I think we're, you know, we're obviously all meant to die and, you know, whatever deeper part of ourselves exists, I'm sure. I don't know, man. I'm counting on Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis to come through in a pinch for us here in the clutch. Yeah, sure. I would, I wouldn't mind. Like, I'm not going to say, oh, no, I want to die. Like, but if I, if my quality of life goes down, I'm certainly going to die. Like if I keep high quality of life, that's fine. But uh, like my in my friend's case, for instance, he had low quality of life at the end. But uh, uh, I I think ultimately you, you you do get absorbed back into whatever, and it's and it's not necessarily a bad thing. And this idea of you know only focusing, you know, it's kind of a cliche to say, oh, focus only on the present moment, because you can't really only focus on the present moment. I have kids, for instance, so I have to focus on their needs a little bit, and I can't just run off into the woods. I gotta pay their bills and and make money, and and hopefully make a lot of money, so I don't have to worry about it because I'm kind of a worrier. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, I think focusing on the present moment means again living life to the fullest, and that doesn't necessarily mean being that doesn't mean be the life of the party everywhere you go. It means for me thinking, what does it mean for me to make this moment, you know, the the best possible moment and, and just doing that all all the time. And that's that's all we can really do. And I think from that falls spirituality and so on. It's a very interesting discussion, by the way. You you, you bring up, you allude to things that I, I, I know what you're alluding to. And like when you say, you know, I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this, there's different disciplines where that's kind of the the meditation there's also disciplines though that are related where it says don't think that because even when you think i'm not that that's you're laboring yourself not that right it's still the label yeah so you have to kind of that helps a little bit to get the focus but then you even have to like say well i can't even put words to it yeah no, that's and and the conversation with your friend and and this line of 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 inquiry too is it reminds me of um, someone once said when we die we become what we were before we were born. I mean, what it is, I don't know, but I think yeah, maybe it's true. Yeah, I I like that thought. That's a nice thought, uh, and you know, all 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 we can all we can do really is 
you know, like I ran into a friend of mine the other day in the street and for the past year, this friend has been, I, we we have been good friends for many years. And then for some reason in the past year, this friend has been oddly rude to me. I don't know if it's something I did. I don't know if something changed in his life. I don't know if there's some perception of something I did or, or maybe I'm just wrong, but I found myself waking up the next day. Like, why is, why has he been rude to me? Like, what, what did I do? And uh, you can't ever ask why, because then I'm like uh, giving him again, I'm giving him part of my thoughts. I'm giving him part of my morning. I'm giving him part of my emotions. And, and you could be wrong. Whatever you came up with in answer to why could be total garbage. Right. Right. Could be total garbage. And I can't, ask him either he's not going to tell me yeah well, and, and even if he did he might, might not even know he might not know or he might lie or right whatever <laughs> or he might be truthful and i might be defensive yeah and who knows so we're still going about living our lives but the, i can say okay but if i'm really going to be again if i'm going to if, if i'm not just talking about these four different types of bodies and spirituality if i'm really living it i have to say okay this is emotions I need to kind of clean the emotional body and I need to focus on who I am, which is kind of this sort of, I, I exist. And then I need to kind of clean house in every other area so that it all, the, the sort of invisible spiritual energy can, can has no obstructions through these four different bodies. It's, I don't want to have a stroke in between my emotional body and my mental body. Yeah. You know, people think of a stroke as an obstruction in the physical body and the veins in the physical body. But I think it could sort of happen if, if anything is obstructed between any of your bodies. Yeah. And again, it sounds a little bit of woo-woo, but it's really just a metaphor for living like a good, healthy life all the way through. Sure. It balanced and yeah, whole. Okay. So let me switch gears to a topic that's distinct, but feels somehow to me related, which is time asking how, so I have a, a few different questions and you can answer any of them or something different if you want, but how do you think about time generally? And then how do you structure your own time? How do you use time effectively? Uh, that's, that's a good question I've been thinking of lately because I don't necessarily think of myself as super productive but lately, people have been asking me, um, oh my gosh, how have you, how do you get so many things done? And again, I don't really think of myself as so productive. Like, I'm going to, I'm definitely going to watch a couple hours of TV tonight. And I've probably played for about an hour uh, chess online today. And I've been reading books that have nothing to do with anything else. But I also then did work-related stuff. What have you uh, been reading? Uh, well, I've been reading a book. So I do have a podcast with someone uh, 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 who she's a therapist who who writes about what her what therapists really think of their patients. So I'm reading her, her book. Uh, Eric Schmidt, the former chairman of Google, he has a book coming out. He's coming on my podcast. I'm reading uh, his book. Uh, Dave Barry, the humorist, uh, he's written like 50 books. He's, he has a new book coming out. I'm reading his books. So I read a couple books simultaneously. And then I'm reading a book that I'm loving, uh, by the comedian Doug Stanhope, 
uh, about his mother. And it's a very funny book. It's kind of a, a memoir. And, uh, uh, and then I, I, uh, but then I read and then I get inspiration like, oh, that's a really interesting thing that that person said. And sometimes when you read a couple of books at the same time, you see ideas from one being applied in interesting ways in another book and combining them gives me an idea. Oh, this is going to be an interesting article taking what she's writing, but applying it to something he just said that made me think about something from my life. And now, boom, I have an article to write. So I write an article and then I think to myself, well, okay, there's an article I was thinking of writing, but what if I take just one idea from this article search for images with this quote on it that's related to this idea. Now I might have an Instagram post. Uh, and so I make it, so I, now I wrote an article, then I have an Instagram post, did reading for the podcast. Uh, when we were setting up the equipment to do the podcast with you, I quickly read eight ads for my podcast. So I got that done. And, uh, uh you know, I have, uh, uh, other things in my life that I do. So I, I, you know, some things, you know, t- take really, you just sit down and do them. So I had to send a video of myself. I'm, I'm going on tour with my podcast and also doing comedy on the tour. So comedy slash podcast, but I needed to send a video of me doing comedy. So I sent it to a bunch of people. You know, I, I had to, it took me 15 minutes. I had to find the right video I wanted to send. And then I sent it out to a bunch of people. So, so suddenly it seems like I'm doing a lot of things, even though I sort of look at my days. Most of the day I was just playing games and reading. And uh, uh, what was the other thing I said I wasted time on? Playing chess uh, for an hour. Yeah, playing chess. And uh, I don't know. There was other ways I was just goofing off. But uh, uh, I think, again... The important thing is always making sure you're making progress. Like, am I making, you know, in these areas of life of building connection uh, with other people, you know, sort of cleaning that emotional body, um, improving at something. So that's, you know, improving, you know, that's related to the physical body and the mental body. Like, let's say I wanted to improve at chess or I wanted to improve at podcasting. How am I? 1% getting better and then freedom. So freedom usually sometimes involves how am I doing in terms of making money? I did a little bit of that today. Like one of my investments, I saw something they were doing that I thought they could do a little bit better. So I wrote to the CEO and I said, why don't you try this? He never responded. I don't know if he'll do it or not, but that's all he needed is that 1%. And if I do that every day or do it in a, for a couple of different investments, I'm going to build wealth. You know, if across a bunch of investments every one day, I'm trying, I take two or three of them and I try to improve them 1%. And, uh, you know, so it just takes a little bit. That 1% a day, remember, compounded is 38 times better a year, which is enormous. Most people don't do anything most people don't try to improve at all during a day it's a it's a particular skill to improve so what do, what do i mean by that you can't i can't just make a suggestion to my to my friend who's the ceo of a company i'm invested in my suggestion might be bad so i have to spend a lot of time thinking what types of suggestions are i have to learn what types of suggestions are good what type are bad what time what type does he listen to? What type doesn't he listen to? What's an effective way 
to communicate? What's an ineffective way to communicate? These are all skills that I could also spend 1% a day learning how to improve those skills. So then I get to the point where I can make a suggestion that might be helpful to my net worth. It's all contributes in the end, but it builds up bit by bit. And and I think that's what people have to focus on is like, oh my God, I'm feeling so anxious. I'm I'm 35 and I don't know what I want to do with my life. There's no answer. I don't, I'm 51. I don't know what I want to do with my life. It's just that 1% a day. Today, it's 1% a day on all of these different areas. And, that, and that's pretty easy to do. And then I can spend the rest of the day playing online chess or I just bought a arcade game. Remember Defender? I don't know if you ever remember Defender. I do remember Defender. I, I didn't play it when it was in the arcade, but I've certainly seen it. That's a classic. You never played the most popular quarter arcade game in history? Only on emulators online. So yeah, so I have the I have the full box, just set it up, uh, plugged it in and it was working mostly. Something was, Some things weren't working. So then I had to get 1% better. I had to learn how to take the box apart and fix it, wow. which I did. Jay, my audio engineer, would be very impressed. I took that box <laughs> apart and I and I fixed it. There was some wires not hooked up right. And uh, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. How do you how do you go about when you do planning? Right? Who was it? I think it's attributed to Eisenhower that plans are worthless, but planning is everything. Right? Like yeah. How do because you approach years, quarters, weeks, days. So that's a great that's a great quote, and I'll tell you why why I think that's a great quote. I could say to myself, you know what? Five years from now, I want to have 10 New York Times bestsellers. Uh, And that could be a goal. And everyone says you should have goals. So fine. Let's say that's my goal. So today, since I'm focusing on, well, what can I do today? I'm not going to write 10 books today. I'm going to write maybe one page of one book and I'm going to write it as well as I can. Well, I I might learn something today or tomorrow or a year from now that might suggest, you know what? The, the New York Times bestsellers are all written by John Grisham and or, or, or J.K. Rowling. And I don't really want to write a legal thriller or a book about wizards. So I might learn that along the way. And so what do I do? Do I say, well, I'm still going to write my book and I'm going to market it really well to be a New York Times bestseller? Or do I change my goals? And, I, and do I say, well, I'm just going to write the best book I could possibly write. So now it's okay to have that goal, but it's really during the planning each day that you learn. You're learning so much all the time. My knowledge of everything that I'm doing will be better a year from now. So the goals I made a year earlier might not make any sense anymore. I might. It might not even make sense for me to say, oh, I'm going to write because the average New York Times best. Let's say, let's say you hit the New York Times bestseller list. Let's say you're number ten. You might just have sold twenty five hundred copies of your book in total, and you made the New York Times bestseller list. And I could maybe do a podcast, and two hundred thousand people might listen to it. So I might say, you know what? If I really want to make impact, or if I want to, you know, get recognized in the street, whatever my current goal is, I'm going to switch. From writing more, putting more effort into writing, to putting more effort and more improvement into podcasting. Uh, uh, let's say I lose interest in podcasting a year from now. It's like, okay, I did what I had. I set out to do with podcasting. I realize that now with all my new knowledge that I'm not going to make further improvements the way I want to in podcasting. I'm going to switch to doing stand-up comedy. 
and or I'm going to switch to just focusing on my investments. And, you know, it's okay to switch goals, but I to this morning I woke up and I did do planning. I'm going to write an article. I'm going to do the podcast with you. I'm going to uh, uh, do an Instagram post. I'm going to prepare for a podcast. I'm going to get on more stages in comedy. I'm going to pick two or three of my investments and just see how they're doing and check in on them and maybe make suggestions. I'm going to take my current business and read an ad for it and and figure out where to put that ad and, and so on. Uh, so again, none of these things take a lot of time, but I'm going to do, I'm going to plan today. What are the best things I can do today? Even if tomorrow I learn some new thing, which forces me to adjust my long-term goals, I might decide, oh, stand-up comedy is useless to me. So that was stupid. I'm going to, or not stupid, but now I'm going to focus on podcasting even more or whatever. That's very reasonable. And I, I, what I love about that is that it allows for the flow, you know, that we are. I mean, I've heard it said that we're more like rivers than statues. And this idea that we're a process. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, 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 for instance, the river is always flowing downstream. But if you throw a stick in the river, you don't know where it's going to end up. It might end up on the shore stuck. It might end up all the way into the ocean. It might end up on the bottom of the river. You, you don't know. But you know that the river is always flowing in that direction. No, I think, I think that's fantastic. Um, do you have a formal personal mission statement or a life purpose statement, anything like that? No, because of this, that same reason, which is that I might learn something new. I, I'm expecting to learn something new tomorrow that would change whatever life statement I, I give you today. So, so, it's, so it's the river analogy, but, but I'll say it in the way we said it before, which is living is life's purpose. And so so for the for, for the river flowing is the river's purpose. Uh but it really every one individual, you know, cell of water uh could end up anywhere. It's just like any day could end up anywhere. I know. And where that thought really blows my mind is even beyond the planet Earth, right? But out to the 14 billion light year universe. And we're yeah. just this one little solar system in the massive expanse. Right. Like, think about it. Think about it in that sense. Like, I, there's no way to avoid this. I mean, unless, you know, science fiction takes hold, which it might. But at some point, the last human being will live. Now, maybe it's because of something happens, you know, soon, like a war or a plague or climate or whatever it is you think could end the world. But certainly when the sun, you know, explodes, at least there will be no humans left on Earth because there'll be no Earth. Or, But let's say you think, okay, we could put ourselves in an AI and beam ourselves out into space. Well, then you got to deal with the galaxy expiring yeah. and, and then eventually all the galaxies expiring. Like that's going to happen eventually. Yeah. And even if it's in trillions of years from now. So at some point, the last human will will think yeah i i had the thought similar to that that i think someday mcdonald's will sell its last hamburger yeah yeah some someday it will someday google will have the last search and who knows yeah that it's could be pretty, soon. pretty remarkable and, and when i hear you describe it like that someday the last human you know and maybe not because we go extinct but maybe we evolve maybe we become yeah. something yeah more. 
Well, do you ever read the Isaac Asimov story? Uh, oh, gosh. It's my favorite story by him. He only wrote 500 books. Yeah. <laughs> wrote yeah. or edited. Uh, he has this beautiful story where computers are getting smarter and smarter and humans are sort of melding with them. And I'll just, this, this is a spoiler. But at the at the very end, the universe is expiring. All the galaxies are dead. But this massive, like, supercomputer, all human consciousness has merged with it. And... The universe expires and this computer uh, plugs in its new program and the first line of the program is let, is, let there be light. <laughs> and so it starts, starts the next universe going. I love it. I love it. Okay, speaking of light, I want to shift now to the lightning round, if you're ready. Yes. Okay, let's do this. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... Uh, uh, life is like nothing. I don't, uh, and I'm not trying to be philosophical. Like, I don't think there's any answer. That's valid. We will, we'll accept that answer. All right. Uh, number two, on a scale of zero to 10, where zero is not at all and 10 is extremely, how weird are you? Uh, I would, I would say... I would say I'm a 10, but I think everybody is a 10. Everyone's kind of unique in their own way as they're, they've they been sent out to spy on the universe and, and report back to the mothership. We've all been, we've all been programmed with our unique instructions of equal weirdness uh, to, 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 to discover. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, again, I forget who said everyone has a public life, a private life and a secret life. Yeah. But we all have it, <laughs> right? So I mean, I mean, I think, I, I think, in the traditional sense, like, like I don't live my life like most people. Uh, uh, so I don't know. Like I played Defender during the day. You know what point really drove that home for me was when I started to listen to your book as an audio book, and you just made it clear to the listener right at the beginning that you were not going to just read that book verbatim. You were gonna you were going to go off when something inspired you to talk about. And, you know, it's like, I like this guy. <laughs> let, let me ask you from zero to 10, how weird do you think you are? You know, I tend to think that all of life really is a bell curve. And, you know, we all think we're better drivers than average. Yeah. We all think we're better lovers than average. So, you know, of course I think I'm probably weirder, but then there's the part of me that goes now I'm more likely than not. I'm just right in the middle of the bell curve anyway. You know, it, it's funny because you, you like, you know, in surveys, nine out of 10 people think they're an above average driver, for instance. Yeah. Like there's a lot, there's a lot of skills where people are deluded as to their ability. So like driving's one. I think poker um, is, is one of those skills. Like everybody's like, oh, I'm good at poker because they play with their friends at home or their family and they beat them. And oh yeah, I'm great at reading people. Oh, and I think judging people, I think most people think that they're, I'm a really good judge of people. Uh, and like, I think it takes, I think, yeah, I think all of these things, it really helps your life if you admit where you're not good on those things that everybody thinks they're good at. Like, for instance, I'm a below average driver. I'm an above average poker player, but I'm a below average judge of people. Like, I really have to be told, no, that's really not such a good person because I give people too much of the benefit of the doubt and I'm I'm a people pleaser. So if you're a people pleaser, it's hard to be a good judge of people. Yeah, I do that sometimes. <laughs> okay, next question. What's something at which you wish you were better? 
Well, anything I'm currently trying to improve at. So I wish I always wish I was a better writer. Uh, uh, and this is this is 28 years, 28 years since I've been writing every single day. And uh, sorry, uh, 29 years since I've been writing every single day. Uh, 17 years since I've been writing professionally, meaning getting paid for it. Uh, I really wish I could improve at writing. Uh, I wish I could improve. Right now, I'm kind of uh, obsessed with this newfound interest, which is stand-up comedy. So I've been doing it for the past four years. I do it like five, six times, five, six nights a week. I am always trying to improve at that. Uh, you know, I play chess every day, so I always wish I was better at chess. I wish I was the best in the world, but I'll never be that. That's another thing. I will never be the best chess player in the world. Well, not with that attitude, mister. <laughs> well, that's just it. Like, you can't, I can't visualize myself winning the world championship and then suddenly, oh, I'm the world champion. Like, uh, I, you know, performance has, skill has some limitations. Like, I'm never going to be the best basketball player in the world either. Uh, you know, but I can improve at it. So I can improve at chess, even though I know I'm not going to be the best in the world. Yeah. Uh, I, I hate admitting limitation. I hate it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. But I hear you for sure. Like, uh, like I wish I was, a. Uh, you know, I'm always trying to improve at investing and I think I'm getting better at that. If I'm not improving at something, then I, then I give up at some point, maybe not year one or year two or year three, but at some point, if I'm not improving, I, I stop. Yeah, I, I think that's totally normal. That reminds me of something um, Tony Robbins says about it doesn't matter how far or how close you are to your goal. If you feel stuck, you will be unhappy. Yeah, like I had a I did a podcast for a while called Question of the Day. Uh, it was with a, uh, one of my close friends, Stephen Dubner, who was the co-author of Freakonomics. And it was it was doing great. The podcast was doing great. We were getting a ton of downloads. Uh, we were making money. I was getting a check every month from it. Uh, but we were feeling stagnant. Like we couldn't come up with new questions. Really, it was getting harder and harder to come up with new questions that were interesting to us. And it was like hard work. We were, I'd have to go uptown, or he'd have to come downtown, and you know, it was like hard work to do everything. And our and our downloads, while they were good. And putting us in the top 100 pretty consistently, they were not going up. In fact, they were probably mildly going down, like maybe, you know, tiny, tiny bit each month. Eh, maybe they were basically staying the same, but it was just not going up. So uh, we stopped after a year and a half. We stopped. I think a couple hundred episodes we stopped. Next question. If you were required. So if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a T-shirt with a slogan on it, or a phrase, or a saying, or a quote, or a quip, what would the shirt say? Oh, man, I almost wore it for this podcast, actually. I wore it yesterday. Uh, I have like a dozen shirts that say uh, the the James Altucher Show uh, uh, podcast. You know, I have shirts for my podcast, like swag for my podcast. That's awesome. So, so and, then, and then I have coffee mugs that have Choose Yourself on the front, and then a quote from the book, Choose Yourself, on, on the back. What's the quote? And, the quote is basically, um, if you let, you know, of course I'm going to ask. Yeah. Now I'm going to forget <laughs> the quote. It's a, it's the most popular quote for it's been, it was the most highlighted quote in the book. Uh, you know, cause you can see on Kindle what the most highlighted is. Um, if you're not choosing your own, 
you know, if you're not choosing yourself, someone else is doing the choosing for you and you'll end up uh, resenting what you do, being bitter at it and not being good at it. Mm. Something like that. Yeah. There's, there's power in that statement. Okay. Number six or wherever we are. Um, what book other than your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? Uh, a lot of books. It depends on who I'm talking to. So yeah, yeah, like, uh, sometimes, you know, a lot of people are interested in writing. So, uh, and, and again, it depends what kind of writing, but let's say somebody's interested in writing really good quality work. doesn't matter if it's fiction, nonfiction, essay, science fiction, whatever. Uh, there's, there's two books that I think are really just like excellent writing this the first book i've read probably over 300 times it's a collection of short stories by a guy named dennis johnson called jesus son the main character is, is a, a drug addict and 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 the stories there it's a collection of short stories so it's not a novel but there's one character who sort of floats through all the stories and it's just such beautiful writing that i read it over and over and over again and every single time i notice something new in the writing Probably read it like, I don't know, once every couple of weeks. Yeah, that's and the mark of great work right there. Yeah. Every time yeah. you engage with it, you take away something new. Yeah, and another book is, um, this book got a lot of criticism when it came out because it, it initially came out as a memoir and then it turned out it was more fiction than memoir uh, or it was at least part fiction. So wait, is, is it A Million Tiny Pieces or Three Cups it, of Tea? <laughs> uh, a Million Little Pieces by James Frey. Okay. And I think it is such a beautifully written book it definitely helps me every time I read it. It helps me improve my writing. Uh, James has been on my podcast because I was I was so happy to talk about the writing in his book, and uh, and he worked really hard at at building up his skills as a writer. So I don't care about any of the criticism of I, I don't care memoir not memoir. I just want to be a better writer, and and reading that book makes me a better writer. Uh, and then in terms of nonfiction. I don't know. Uh, I like I like a lot. It depends on the day. I I like a lot of nonfiction, and it depends on the person. Okay, thank you. So you travel a ton. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Uh, I don't know because I real I, I I do travel a lot, but. I really, really hate traveling. Like, I hate it. I love just sitting in my apartment and watching TV. What, like, what do you hate about traveling so much? I mean, I get loving being home for sure. Well, just the process of traveling. It's like, a, it just drains you and then you're tired. And then even when I travel home, then I'm I'm knocked out for like two or three days. So it becomes harder to... My, my main thing that I in, enjoy working on is I write every single day. Every morning I write. So if I'm traveling... And then for two or three days afterwards and on either side, uh, you know, I'm too tired. It makes my writing more difficult. So, but, uh, uh, you know, I used to, I used to just live in Airbnbs. So I didn't, I didn't rent an apartment. I didn't own an apartment. I just lived from Airbnb to Airbnb. Yeah, so I understand one, you did that for like two years. Is that so? Yeah, about three years. Yeah. Wow. And uh, I will say one important Airbnb hack is a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to stay in an Airbnb and I'm going to do it cheaper than if I were to stay in a hotel. I, th I find that to be a common attitude. 
my advice is never try to beat the hotel. Try to spend more than if you were staying in a hotel. Because if you're if you're not having the amenities of a, of a hotel, which an Airbnb doesn't have, and you're paying less than a hotel, you're gonna something is gonna be wrong. Like something's gonna be horribly wrong with that Airbnb. So try to enjoy staying in a nicer in, in a more expensive Airbnb than the equivalent hotel room. I don't know if that's a hack really, but it makes it makes your trip better. You'll have a more enjoyable trip. And then also I always um whenever you go someplace, you know where you're going to visit. I try to be as close you know, there's a lot of correlation between quality of life and length of commute. So I always try to be where, as close as possible to where I have to be. Hmm. So that's another one. That No, that's wise. I think a lot I, of people don't I, think about that. And, you know, it's in the same way that they don't factor in the true cost of being employed somewhere, right? Between the clothes and the meals and the childcare and, and the same thing about then the cost, not only of that home, but their experience and what they give up in the commute. That's why I don't live in California. Right. Like if you're going to if you're going to live in like L.A. or New York City, you better have a really good reason for it because it's expensive. And even if you like in New York City, if you make a million a year, you you probably will have a much lower quality of life than if you make 70,000 a year in Kansas City. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty remarkable. Um, What about are there any possessions? Is there any any devices, any pillows, any you know, I don't know, infrared, like I'm just wondering when you travel, is there anything that you've discovered that you're like, or supplements or, you know, anything like that, that you're like, man, I never really travel without that. It's the first thing on my list. Well, you know, I, uh, when I was living out of Airbnbs, I also threw out everything I owned. So 40 years worth of junk that I had accumulated. This is so liberating. (laughs) It does sound liberating. It, it sort of is, but sometimes you would miss things or sometimes there's things, oh my gosh, I really need this one thing that I would always use for the past 30 years and you just don't have it anymore. So but so that means though, there was nothing. When I traveled, I would travel with two pairs of pants, two t-shirts, maybe two sweaters or one sweater. A, I would wear a jacket. Um, I had my computer and a, and a phone. Uh, and that was it because then when I would land, I would buy like a toothbrush and a toothpaste. So there's nothing there was that oh, I would also have a waiter's pad. So that's something I would always carry around to take notes with. So that, that's down, something you're sure you to always travel with is the waiter's yeah, pad. Yeah, I, I always have a waiter's pad to, to write ideas down. Because mm. as soon as you have an idea, you think, man, this idea is so good. I'm definitely going to remember it. Nope. You remember nothing. You have to always write things down. When you read the ideas later, do you find that they're still as good as the moment that you had them? I don't really read them later. I'm just trying to practice uh, exercising the idea muscle. So if you don't exercise it, it'll atrophy and you won't be as creative. So I always try to, every day, every morning, I try to write 10 ideas or 10 somethings that are difficult to think about a day. And that, and I've been doing that since 2002. And, uh, you know, you get better and better at coming up with ideas and being creative. It's that 1% a day improvement. That's kind of the sand mandala practice, the equivalent. I, I would say if you were to start writing 10 ideas a day 
every day, within six months, your entire brain, you'll notice it. Your entire brain will be rewired. Your listeners' brains will be rewired and they will feel the effect. They will feel, they'll look at something and say, boy, here's 10 ideas for how this restaurant could be better that I'm sitting in right now. Or, or oh, my car just just blew out in the middle of the highway. I, I well, But magically, I have 10 ideas to get out of this situation. You know, I, I love that. When I hear you say that, and I, you know, I, I have the sense, like I haven't done it as a conscious practice like you're discussing, but it's resonating with me in a way that I know it's true, even without having done it, right? And so then what, what I'm thinking is, man, when this podcast launches, I want to invite listeners to take this on as a challenge for six months, like you're saying, and not necessarily to, to share the ideas. Like you're saying, you don't even read the ideas, but instead to stay connected in, a, in some sort of community to share their experience and what came from it as a result. Yeah, and, and you know, sometimes, so I say, I, I, I would say I 95% do it for the exercise. It's not like... Um, uh, I, I don't know what to compare it to, but uh, I 95% do it for the exercise, but sometimes I do share the ideas. So I might say, here's 10 ideas for Google. Here's 10 ideas for Amazon. Here's 10 ideas for LinkedIn. Um, you know, and, and then I'll send them to to them and so, and very often I'll hear, I'll, I'll hear back from them. So I've gotten invited out to Seattle and I, I, you know, the Amazon people, they, they, rolled out the red carpet or their self-publishing division and they showed me all the products they were working on and they they wanted you know they they because they saw my ideas and they said oh we're already working on some of these ideas what do you think i flew out to linkedin i've flown out to google uh i've been uh, i've been all over all over the place because of sharing ideas i've gotten jobs because of sharing the 10 ideas then i started businesses because of sharing the ideas i've gotten writing gigs because of sharing the ideas so it's it's I've networked because the idea is like I I could send, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Here's 10 ideas for for how you're what you could do at this next phase in your career. And lo and behold, he'll come on my podcast to talk about it. That's so great. No, that's fun. Thanks for sharing that. Last couple questions in the lightning round. What's one thing I, I might I might do that, by the way. I mean, it's, I don't want to steal your idea. By, how do you think no, about that, it, by the way? Stealing ideas. Like if I... Oh, people should steal ideas all the time. Like, what, what, what the... Like, I remember one time I started a business and I don't know why I didn't do my basic research, but I was like almost done developing this website that was going to be my business. And I realized, oh my God, I have like at least five competitors that are already up and running. And I got really depressed but then I thought to myself, you know what? I know I am more passionate about this idea than anyone else. And I know I have more skills in this area than any of these people who are my competitors. So if you're going to steal an idea, knock yourself out because A, there's plenty of other ideas. And I know, you know, it's not like we have a scarce world of ideas. Ideas are abundant. There's ideas all the time that never nobody would ever thought of. And, and second... The person who's most passionate and most skilled will will win. And and if I'm doing an idea, I'm gonna have confidence in myself that I could do this idea. If you could do it better, then power to you. Yeah, I'm reminded of what Elizabeth Gilbert writes about in Big Magic about ideas landing in different places around the world with different people simultaneously as well. Just that 
magic of synchronicity and the zeitgeist and everything. Right. And so, so writing these 10 ideas a day, that puts you in the flow of that idea stream. You know, there, there's like, as she points out, like there's something happening. You know, how did Leibniz and, and Newton come up with calculus at the same exact moment? Completely, and you know they weren't talking. It's like completely different, you know, way mathematical languages they used to express it. But they both came up with calculus. There's like this idea stream that was flowing through that they both tapped into somehow. Yeah, amazing. Okay, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Uh, I stopped. Uh, uh, this is a small thing, but I stopped going to sleep in the same room as my cell phone why well when you if you wake up in the middle of the night you know sometimes you would oh what time is it and then you look at your cell phone and it's like oh i got some emails you start to get emails at like three in the morning and then you can't go back to sleep or you or you react to the emails or like oh this person sent me this email and now i'm agitated i gotta respond and i might even get up and go to the laptop or desktop um, and then I find if I put it in the other room, I just wake up at like a good natural time for me and I'm not that eager to read my emails. I try even further. I try not to look at my phone for the first hour of the day, which is which is really hard, but I try to do it. Yeah, that's beautiful. And and also um I try to I try to uh I try to eat well. So I and and by that no I, there's no well, I you know, I've had so many you know, nutritionists on my podcast, the only thing I could conclude is that, you know, processed sugar is bad. And I've had every type of diet person on my podcast. But I think in general, probably most problems, health problems come from eating, eating too much. And now eating too much by itself is probably not bad. Um, but the fact is, is that almost all food is processed in some way. So the more processed foods you eat, it's probably it's great to solve world hunger. That's how we solve world hunger is by processing foods. But we also get addicted to that processing. And so if you eat less, you're probably going to eat less processed foods. And that's healthier. And in general, humans probably eat too much. And I'm over 50 years old. I probably don't need to eat as much as I did when I was 30, for instance. So... So, so eating, eating less each year probably helps me. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. I just, uh, crested 40 and, uh, I think I'm seeing evidence of my metabolism slowing. Yeah. Right. Right around 40. I had to, uh, like 40 was the year I stopped pad Thai at Thai restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, you're like, that's it. Pad Thai. Yeah. I haven't had pad Thai since. And I love pad Thai. Like I miss it. Oh man. If, if I come to New York, um, I might bring you some pad thai. You don't have to eat it, but uh, you'll know I was thinking of you if some pad thai uh, shows you're up. You're going to tempt me? It's going <laughs> to... No, I, but, I but, but, here, but here's the thing. Uh, but this is a very important thing. You can't just sort of decide, oh, I'm just not going to eat as much. Like we, I, we, we have all these urges to eat. And so I specifically changed my lifestyle to, to fit this. So for instance, I do not go grocery shopping. I, and I don't do any grocery shopping at all. Uh, because when I, when I go into a grocery store at night, you know, at night you have less willpower than in the morning. So, but people mostly shop at night. So if I go to a grocery store at night, oh, there's a bag of potato chips. Eh, I'll buy it. I'll, I, I promise I won't eat the whole thing. But 
it's a guarantee that entire bag of chips will end up in my stomach. And so I only order delivery. But then you think to yourself, well, if you order delivery, the foods are all, you know, much, much richer. Uh, you might have more calories. But it's actually not true. Like, I can't order a bag of Doritos from a restaurant. They just won't send, they don't have that on the, they don't, there's never a bag of Doritos on the dessert menu. Uh, and, and in general, I just won't order dessert from a restaurant. I'll just order my meal and that's it. And then I reduce, that's how I reduce snacking. And that helped considerably is by changing my lifestyle. So I never grocery shop. So I only order delivery. Yeah. That, that's smart. Okay. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Uh, I wish every American knew to not to not take things so seriously. Like everyone's so angry at everyone else right now. And and yes, every political issue is important for some people. So if you're a woman and you want to have an abortion, it's life-changing whether it's legal or illegal to have an abortion. Um, so that's an issue that's important to you and, and, and I'm pro-choice. I'll, I'll vote for that. But n nothing is ever black and white. Every issue has, has nuances. Um, and we see a lot of this. That's why there's two sides. That's why there's two sides to almost every issue. There's the, you know, Trump and Barack Obama both had stances on immigration. It's not like Obama was, let's let everybody in, and Trump is, let's kick everyone out. There's nuances, there's a spectrum. And so everybody now is playing personality politics, identity politics, uh, and yet most people probably don't really know what the actual laws are. Uh, you know, they're just playing the personality. They don't, I don't know actually what the immigration laws are because it doesn't really affect me that much. You know, abortion laws, I don't really know the exact laws. I'm pro-choice, but again, there's nuances from state to state. I have no idea what those nuances are. Um, and if I cared about every single issue, that would p take up all my time. So you kind of have to pick your spots. So that's why, as a shortcut, people play, people join a group. And they sort of, once you join a group, you believe in all of the issues of that group. You know, I wish people would think a little bit more for themselves and take, you know, don't take every issue so seriously because you're not going to be a master of every single issue. And it doesn't make sense to just sign up for one group on every single issue. And, you know, and, and, and you know, that said, there's a saying, you know, clean your room before or change, clean your room before you try to change the world before you try to clean the world. And so I wish people would do that a little bit more instead of like arguing with each other on Facebook all day long. Yeah. It's, it's not a real dialogue on, on social media in most cases. Oh, for sure. Right. So that's one thing I do. I never go on the newsfeed on Facebook or the newsfeed on Twitter. Uh, I, oh, I, I, it's part of my business to distribute content. So I will put po post on my page and I will post on, you know, I'll tweet and I'll post on my Instagram, but I never look, I, I never watch the news. I never read the news. I never look at the news feed of my friends on Facebook. If I need to know something, I'll call somebody or email someone. How's it going? You don't care um, about what's going on with their kids and what they had for lunch? Uh, it, you know, like 
if something as serious is happening, like you know, know, a friend dying, I will know. And if something is seriously happening in the news, like people say, well, you must be really uninformed. Listen, I've worked for almost every, and I've written for almost every major news outlet. You don't get informed by reading the news. Reporters are not informed. They're, they are force-fed news based on the political bias of the companies they work for, based on the publicists who are sending in the news. There's no more journalism that's really happening, or it's very rare. So I, if somebody says to me, like someone I trust says to me, oh my gosh, you need to read this one article in this one magazine. It's about something you're, that's important to you. I'll read it, but I am not going out of my way to stay informed. And by the way, I'm just as informed as anyone else. I will even go on news shows without knowing the news, and I'll be more informed than anyone else on the news show. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Because <laughs> you just get the news by osmosis anyway, but, but then everything else is just filters on top of that. Yeah, totally. Well, okay, so here's the conclusion of the lightning round. I just want to end this by doing two things. One is... Um, taking a moment to express my gratitude to you for your generosity with your time and in your experience and to share with you that I've made a microloan through Kiva.org on your behalf as a way of expressing my gratitude. Oh, thank you. I hope you, uh, I hope that loan works out for you. <laughs> I, yeah. You know, I love Kiva where I, I realize I actually do lose money because some people default and some people, um, there's currency exchange loss, but me as a lender, I never get interest. Instead, that goes to the field partners on the ground in places like India or Kenya to fund their operations. So it's um, it's not an interest-making venture for me in any way. Instead, it's a way of um, helping to deploy my blessings, I think, in, uh, in ways that make a difference. This loan went to a 37-year-old woman who lives in North Jinnapur in West Bengal, India. She's a uh, Got a household of five members, earns about $112, the equivalent of $112 US a month. So she'll use this money to purchase more patty to expand her family's patty business. Oh, that's great. Uh, I like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, and by the way, I think that peer-to-peer lending could be a viable source of income. You know, I as agree. Oppo- as opposed to a savings account where you get like one half of a percent interest, probably with with good diversification and, you know, smart lending you could probably make eight or nine percent a year with peer-to-peer lending. Yeah, is, I, is, I'm sure. Is my gut. Right. I've never, I've never done it. I've done some research on it. Uh, if I was at that point where I felt like, you know, using that as an investment strategy, that's what I would aim for: is eight, eight or nine percent. And one thing I love about this too is that it's not charity, right? There's really no conditions. If she never repaid me, I understand. And and there's nobody. There's no white male from a Western country saying, you know what you need to do with this money is. It's trusting their own intelligence and experience to use it for the highest good of their family and their community. Yeah. And 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 again, to make if you were doing this as a money making strategy, you would have to do like hundreds of, of these types of microloans or more thousands to, to make it worthwhile. And then there's other more sophisticated ones like not just Kiva, but but Yield Street which is sort of like trade finance in the in the hedge fund business, but without you can go directly do it instead of doing it through a hedge fund, which is, takes all these fees. So there's various ways to do this kind of lending. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I want to put here, just before the last few questions specific to writing, to make sure I get it in and don't try to leave it to the end, is is just to um, let listeners know. You know, anybody that's enjoyed, clearly anybody that's listened this long has has enjoyed this. Um, 
how they can learn more from you, how they can connect with you. Um, what would you like those people to do? Uh, I think my podcast is, is a lot of fun. I mean, your podcast is good too. So they're now they have two podcasts they can listen to. Um, I have a lot of fun guests. I have a lot of writers on my podcast, both fiction and nonfiction, uh, fiction. I always love discussing the process of writing and I have both genre writers and literary writers. Uh, and, uh, you know, like I have had on Ken Follett and Judy Bloom. Both of them have sold more than a hundred million copies of their books. I've also had on James Frey, who's a very literary writer. Uh, uh, and I've had a ton of nonfiction writers on. So that's interesting because, you know, you get, you know, what, all their information that they know. Uh, and that's a great, they, they spend 20 years doing the research and then in an hour long podcast, I can get, I try to get as much information or two hours. I can try to get as much information as possible from them. So you don't have to spend 20 years, uh, doing it. And, um, you know, also James is my website. All my articles are there. So that's it. Awesome. Okay. Well then let's switch gears for one last time to move into an exploration of the the magic and misery that is writing, <laughs> the creative process. Yes. Where to begin? Let me start by asking who has been influential for you in your career and your development as a writer and what have you learned from them? Well, uh, hundreds and hundreds of people, all writers have been influential to me. Um, so I mentioned Dennis Johnson and his collection of short stories. If you read that book 300 times, you'll be a good writer if even one step further, if you take your favorite story in that book and you write it out by hand for yourself and just really study it sentence by sentence, you'll be a better writer. So reading makes you a better writer. And, what would and, that do for someone? I mean, I get their overall skill and the quality of their product would increase, but that's kind of vague. How does that make? Because I heard Benjamin Franklin did that. He would take oh, yeah? entire passages and reproduce them, you know, word by word. Well, I think what you do, what happens is you see why, you know, a really great writer, no word is is in the wrong place. So if I'm writing, let's say you're writing a legal thriller. I'm just making this up. Let's say you're writing a legal thriller. You wouldn't say, um, you know, oh, the 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 flowers on the on the bush were turning a pale yellow and the sun was mixed with, you know, different hues of purple and pink. Like you might say that you might not, but you probably wouldn't because what does that really add to the story? But for Hemingway, when he describes nature, he's not describing it to be poetic, even though it might come across as very poetic. He might say, he might start something off uh, a chapter off. Uh, oh, we were going to go hunting, but I could see in the distance the clouds were were dark and foggy. And that's not about the clouds. That's about what he's about to say in the story. So you, you start to learn how, how the words themselves contribute to the structure and, and the movement of the story. And then you learn also, you, you can go through, in a good writer, you can go through every single sentence and there's not a single cliche. Cliches are cliches, because they're they're in every other book, like they're, they're, most writers write in cliches. 
you pick up almost any romance novel and it's filled with cliches or or or, or many you know genre novels that don't make the bestseller list they don't make the bestseller list because there's probably lots of cliches in them in the plot in the language and the phrasing um and you see the people who don't use cliches you start to think what did they do how did they take a look at this image and come up with a completely brand new way to say it that nobody else has ever said before. And that's just a fascinating, that's why I say when I read a book 300 times, suddenly new, some new sentence will pop out at me and I'll think to myself, oh, he was thinking of something differently than I thought he was when he came up with this exact phrasing. And so it's a similar in stand-up comedy. So I would say recently stand-up comedy has been influential in my writing you know, you can't you in in stand up comedy you cannot have a word out of place. One word out of place, and and people won't laugh. One one consonant out of place, one letter out of place, people won't won't laugh. And uh, you know, you learn this kind of industry of words that is really important. Uh, so I I would say more recently. You know, comedy has been very influential on in my writing, not because I'm trying to make my writing funnier, but because, you know, when you when you when you write a sentence down, even if it's one sentence among thousands in, a, in an essay or a story or a book, what was the point of that sentence? So if you make a joke, it's one thing to say, um, you know, oh, you know, when I when I whenever I'm in New York City. Whenever I leave New York City, I realize the rest of the world is not used to the smell of urine. So it's one thing to say that as a joke, meaning New York City, you know, everywhere you go, it smells like urine. But think deeper, like, what's the point? Like, can New York City get better? What's an example? Like, did you see someone peeing? Like, is there are there mentally ill people in New York City? Like, you, you know... It forces you to explore things a little. If you want to be good, it forces you to explore things a little deeper. And uh, which direction am I going? Did I leave New York City or am I going into New York City? What's 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 a better way to get the point across? Uh, uh, so you know, you think you think about much more nuanced things. And and again, because I'm going to try it on a stage, and people either laugh or they don't laugh, I get direct feedback if I'm achieving what I'm hoping to achieve. And and sometimes people laugh, by the way, at something, but I might not have made a point. So I have to push back at myself and say, and this is what I learned from comedians, make a point. And you, and you find when you think, well, what's the point of this? There's a lot more room for humor that I'm missing, that I left on, I left on the stage. I didn't say it because there was a lot more room. And because I didn't make a, I didn't really get to the point, even though I got to a punchline. There was probably five more punchlines until I got to the real point. So anyway, that's just a few little things. The other thing is very important, by the way, uh, and, and, and this is an important rule. And even knowing this rule, you should still do this rule, because, and you'll see what I mean in a second. When you write something, take out the first paragraph and take out the last paragraph, and then read it, and you'll see that it's better. And even knowing that rule, you should still follow that rule. That's awesome. I love so that. So like even even knowing it and you write the first line in the first paragraph and you're like, I'm not going to take out that paragraph. It's great. 
write the whole thing and you realize, ah, oh, yeah, when I took it out, it was better. So it still works. That's great. So you, I heard you say in this conversation, you write every single day. Yeah. What does that look like? Do you have a certain time of day? Do you have a word count? Do you have a duration? Do you do it longhand? Do you type? Um, I type and it's always in the morning. It's never in the afternoon. Uh, it, you, you know, your brain is most... Again, I don't know if this is true or not. Dan Ariely, the behavioral scientist, did a bunch of studies, and he determined that your brain is most active uh, two to four hours after you wake up, meaning if you wake up at seven, then from nine to 11, is your brain is at peak activity. So I try to read in those first two hours, and then in the second two hours, when your brain's the most active, or the second two to three hours, I try to write. And then um, I write. So I'll think of some prompt or I'll think of some story and then I'll just write. And sometimes it'll be good. Sometimes it'll be bad. I used to judge myself every day like, oh, it wasn't good today. So it's a waste. But no matter what, if I challenge myself and I write, you know, I might not. It doesn't matter to me if it's good or bad. I'll I'll publish the good stuff and I'll usually ignore the bad stuff, or or maybe a year later, I'll pull up something that was bad and and rewrite it, and and it'll be better because I'll improve a year from now. And the same uh, the same thing again happens in comedy. Like recently, I did a joke that I last that I retired four years ago because I thought I felt like it sucked four years ago, but now when I do it, I've made it better. So you learn and you make things better. So when you're working with these things over such a long period, I mean, how do you engage with what you've written do you have some kind of a filing like do you have some kind of a sophisticated filing system do you do it chronologically do you put tags on what you write do you go back and reread things from time to time i mean how do you manage because you're very prolific yeah so i have like on my on my blog on jamesaldrichard.com i probably have about 3000 articles there uh since 2010 so um kind of these person in this personal essay slash story style. And so I'll, I'll often go back and, and reread and I'll see, oh, that thing from 2011, I don't like it anymore, but I like the concept, so I'll rewrite it. Um, that's that's one technique. Another technique might be something that happened to me yesterday. Um, what ha- what's the most interesting thing that happened to me yesterday? I might write about that. Uh, another might be, and again, now that I'm kind of mixing comedy with writing, it might be that, oh, this weird little thing occurred on the stage. So I'm going to write this. I'm going to flesh that out into a story rather than a comedy bit because I know I focus grouped it, right? I t- set it in front of a stage and people responded. Maybe they groaned or maybe they heckled or maybe they laughed, but they still responded. And so that's a story. That gives me an idea for a story. Um you know, or all sorts of things. You know, I, I uh, a couple months ago, I played in a poker tournament sponsored by the Clinton Foundation. Now, I have no political bias. I don't know. I don't. Bill Clinton was president. What tw- was it? Nineteen years ago. I have no opinion on on him as a as a. I don't know him, but I wanted to play poker in this in this tournament, and uh, so I did. And then I spoke with president clinton for a while and i got my picture taken with him and i posted the picture on instagram and within seconds i lost 
a hundred followers on Instagram. And people even wrote, you know, that's it, unfollow. Like they were like hurting me somehow, <laughs> like by an anonymous, an anonymous stranger out of tens of thousands of anonymous strangers is unfollowing me. Oh my God, I should really do something to please him. I should take down this photo of me with President Clinton. Uh, you know, it's not every day you get to talk to one of the 40 or so people who are president of the United States, the most powerful person in the world. So, you know, whatever. Uh, but what was interesting to me was that people would unfollow me on social media because of that photo. And so that is a story. Like, that's interesting to me. So if something's interesting to you, then it's probably a story. If, if you know, um, Louis C.K. once said, if you think about something three times in a week, then you should probably write about it. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the way you said that too. If something's interesting to you, it's probably, it's probably a story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and at the same time where we know, you know, writing, I mean, it's such an interesting practice too, because there are all the different reasons and, and, you know, motives in, in that when you write as you're writing of things that are interesting to you, how aware are you of your audience? Uh, I'm pretty aware, actually, you know, I'd like to be able to say, I don't care, but I do care. I want people to like it. And I think when people say, I don't care, they shouldn't let the audience dictate what they write. But I do care that the audience is entertained and educated I, 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 by what I write, which mean, which has to mean also that I'm having fun writing it. If I'm not having fun writing it, the audience is not going to have fun reading it. And... uh like and I like to, I, I like to know that oh I'm gonna write a sentence that's gonna shock people a little bit. Like I can't believe he wrote that. I, I and I always test myself a little. Like before I hit publish, I have to ask myself, am I a little bit afraid to publish this? Because if I'm not afraid to publish it, it means it's probably been said before, and then and then I'm feeling a little too safe. Like if 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 you always go to the safe spot, what? That's where everybody is. They don't need you. It's already crowded there. They don't need another person in the safe spot. You know, you have to go to a part, some place that's a little unsafe. And there's, there's certainly in this world plenty of places that are not so safe uh, in in terms of writing. Yeah, for sure. No, I I really like that perspective, and I know it's a little different because it was a comment made about marketing that Russell Brunson said. But it makes me think about your your comment now about writing and being safe is um, where he talked about in his book, dot-com secrets saying, if I haven't pissed somebody off by noon, I'm not marketing hard enough, <laughs> you know? Yeah, well that, and 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 by the way, I'm not a natural marketer and marketing is different than sales. I'm sort of a natural salesperson, but marketing is really hard for me. And when I see my products marketed, I'm just like, oh, I can't believe it. But, but marketing is important. It's the way you get a message out and you have to use the methods of the best marketers, even if you don't like them, because the best marketers will get their message out. And if you're not using their techniques, you won't get your message out. So marketing, and and he's right, marketing, uh, I have never had more enemies and more people send me death threats than when I was spending the most amount of money marketing products. So, so, and, and that means the marketing's working because that's when you're making the most money too. Cause you also get a lot of people who like what you're doing uh, when they actually look at the product and they like it and so on. But, uh, it's definitely, it's definitely true for, for, for writing as well. Like, 
and 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 sometimes people tell me like so after this Clinton thing, oh, oh I was thinking of having another person on my podcast, a, a Democratic presidential candidate. And by the way, I have Republicans on my podcast as well. I've had Democrat. I don't I don't really care about the two party system, um, but uh, somebody. You know, one of my colleagues said, oh, James probably shouldn't do that because look what happened when he had a picture of Clinton on his Instagram. I don't I don't care at all that I do care about having more downloads, but I care more about being interesting. And, and, and you know, in you know, I, I did something the other day and I'm sorry I'm making your lightning round like. No, no, no. We, we're good. We're, we're past lightning. We're in we're in the home stretch on writing. <laughs> So, 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 so like I, I did something the other day, which I knew, which I knew would cause me some trouble, but I made, I did about a hundred tweets in an hour. So what I did was I tweeted the ultimate guide to starting and running a business. And then I tweeted a, a reply to it. Rule number one, rule number two, rule number three. And I did like a hundred rules. And for people who get notified because they follow me, they get annoyed because they're getting a hundred tweets like popping up on their phone. And so I got right away, I got like maybe 500 people unfollowed me and I knew that would happen. Um, but I created so much value that by the end of the day after from where I had started, I had a th- actually 2000 new followers. So net net a thousand new followers. So again, you can't think too short term about likes and follows and stuff like that. I do think about the, about providing value for the audience, about entertaining the audience, about being slightly afraid to hit publish. Um, you know, like in that in those in that tweets class, I call it a Twitter masterclass that I do. In that Twitter masterclass, one of my rules, uh, I did like an FAQ, a fake FAQ, and one of the questions was, should I have sex with an employee if I start a business? And I answer that as truthfully as I can. Well, that's a little scary in today's environment. So uh, you have to push a little bit always. I think you're right. And and I think about, I mean, this whole area of marketing as a writer, right? I think there's a lot, it's in the same way I see it with coaches where they seem to have money blocks. They want to serve people. They're talented, you know, they're motivated, but then when it comes to actually making a financial exchange, it somehow seems dirty or scary you know, or something. And, and I see with writing, you know, somebody pointed out to me that you look at the cover of the New York Times bestseller, it doesn't say New York Times best writing writer, best writing right. author, it's best selling author. Right. right? And, and this whole thing about I remember when Tony Robbins, I watched a video with him on I think it was on Business Insider or Inc or something. And he said, I knew early in my career that if I didn't become a master marketer, my ideas would die on my lips. And what I have to share with people is too valuable to let that happen. So it, I saw a kind of an analog in my life when I worked at my, my dad spent a hundred million dollars to build a motorsports park in the desert West of Salt Lake. And what I saw was there are so many talented drivers, but if they can't effectively market themselves and the term in that industry, you know, is find a ride. If they can't find a ride, if they can't sell, you know, and get sponsors to fund because motorsports as we know, it's expensive. And it was like, you could have all the talent in the world behind the wheel, but if you can't convince somebody to, uh, to underwrite, you know, your campaign, you're, you're not going anywhere in that sport. It's true. It's true. Uh, and I mean, that really is the, the, so marketing is so critical for success and 
you know, someone who's passionate about their product, but, but doesn't do the marketing, they're just going to lose. Like, you know, for, for me, my biggest encounter with that was I had a slightly different take on cryptocurrencies than most people in 2017. And uh, my take was unique and it was able, and at the time, nobody even understood what Bitcoin was, what blockchain, people still don't really understand, but I had a way of explaining it to the layman. I'm a technologist by training, but I also have been in the investment business. So I had a way, I understood both sides of it and had a unique perspective. And, and I also was looking at it from an evolutionary perspective and the evolution of money and, and so on. So I developed a product where I basically said most cryptocurrencies are scams, but here's how you identify them and here's some good ones. And I'm not trying to advertise it here. Like I'm not telling people to, to buy it or anything, but I hired a whole team of people to help me. Cause I, and the reason I did this, is I had a lot of readers who were asking about cryptocurrencies and I saw they were buying scams. So I decided to put some effort into it and I built a product and cause I spent some money, I decided to market it. The marketing was successful because the country people wanted a, to make some money or to save some money or to not lose money. And B, they responded to me explaining cryptocurrencies to the layman. But the marketing was, it was working. So we hit the accelerator. The more it's working, the more you hit the accelerator. So there were, I, I, we, we spent in one month, I don't know how many, how many tens of millions of dollars. Uh, and it was just like my face uh, all over. We like bought the internet and it was like this eccentric crypto genius has this surprising prediction and it was true with marketing you know i did i did i was saying 95% of cryptocurrencies were scams that prediction turned out to be true and uh but nobody would look at the product and all these articles came out you know who is this guy this guy's evil for doing all this marketing and I'm like, did you read? I would even have friends call me. You're, why are you doing this? This is so s s disgusting what you're doing. And I'm like, look, I'll send you the product. You could see. And I actually lost friends over this, which you could say maybe they weren't friends to begin with, but still it hurt. And so much hate. And I'd say, just read the product. I'll send it for free. And nobody would. They were just like, no, no, no. Your marketing is disgusting. But what can you do? You have to, you have to sell to sell. Yeah. You know, if, if you're in the business to truly serve people, I mean, anybody can self, they can write on, on, in a word document and go to Amazon and, and self publish. But again, if, if the word doesn't get out, it's like having a great restaurant, you can have wonderful food, but if people don't know about it, you know, you're not going to be in business very long. Yeah. So, okay. Last, last few questions here coming down the stretch when it comes to writing caffeine or no caffeine, caffeine, what's your favorite delivery mechanism? Uh, just black coffee. Oh, <laughs> okay. Because I don't like I don't like I don't like dairy and and sugar. As I mentioned, I think is bad for you, and I don't like the taste of coffee uh, either. But I don't know, and and probably I don't even know how much coffee helps me anymore. I try to only do like two or three cups. You know, some people do much more, but I don't know. I I I have a harder time without coffee. I think. I don't even know. I have coffee every single day. Yeah. I don't know how Tony Robbins does it. No alcohol, no coffee, no meat. And that guy has more energy. Than I, I know. Uh, I, yeah, I know a lot of people like that. And, and they do a lot of like green juices and stuff. I, I think that's everybody's got their thing. Yeah. So. What, um, 
when you write music or no music no music i don't want any i don't want any distractions now i will sometimes write in a cafe but though that's not distracting because I'll, I'll tune out all the people talking but music is you can't tune out uh so music i like to just listen to because i like listening to music not because it helps my writing yeah what technology do you find indispensable as a writer uh, um i mean the books. word processor obviously <laughs> right yeah, are just, there any other apps or devices no, or anything no, zero okay well that was easy what's the best money you've ever spent as a writer uh getting a professional cover designed so, so, so how did you when, go about finding the designer and how did you make, how did you ensure that it worked well for you? I mean, I really interviewed lots of designers and I also tried to find designers who had previously designed best-selling books. Uh, you know, a book, you, you don't know if you're going to like a book when you walk into the, you see, when you walk into the bookstore, there's 10,000 books. So you want your, if you write a book, you want your book to look like the sort of book that is on the table with the best-selling books. That's that's the best thing you can do to attract the first few seconds of attention, and that's the most important seconds. So they're not reading the book. They might not even see the title of the book because they're from a distance. You just want your book to look like it belongs on the bestseller table. Yeah, now, that reminds me of what Ryan Holiday says when he says, people say you can't judge a book by a cover. That's ridiculous. That's why they have covers. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and by the way, for, for the book, Choose Yourself, I hired Ryan Holiday to help me market that book. Yeah, that's right. I just read his perennial seller and uh, he mentions you yeah. in that. And, and that's one thing I'm curious um, to ask about. And, and this one, I don't know, maybe this is, maybe this would be a question better asked, not as part of the podcast, but I actually reached out to Brass Check as well and, and said, you know, Will you help me? Um, I have a, a book that I'm kind of stuck in, in the middle of, uh, toward the tail end of. And uh, I was a little surprised when the response back was, well, you know, I'd be happy to help, but um, how about our initial consultation? We'll charge you $1,500 for one hour, and then we'll go from there. <laughs> I was like, holy cow. Well, I think I think they've, in the past five or six years, they've just changed a lot as a business and, uh, you know, demand, you know, there's not many people doing what, what Ryan Holiday does. Like he's the full package in the sense that he's a good writer. He's a good marketer. He knows the industry inside and out. He's extremely smart. And and he's m older now than he was when he was working with me. He was, he was a young guy in his mid-20s. Now I think he's he must be in his early 30s. I don't know. Um, and I, I think just... He, he he's making a different kind of money now. Yeah, for sure. Well, he's very talented. No question about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, how do you, so this is not directly related to the craft of writing, but to the, maybe more the business of writing. How do you think about, and as a writer, this could be a business person, but I'm specifically thinking of coming to this from a writer. How do you think about relationships and how do you maintain relationships that are mutually beneficial you know, and good specifically for your career as a writer. This is really, this is really important. Like, I, honestly, this could be the topic of like five podcast episodes, but you know, you really need to make sure all the relationships in your life are conducive to the lifestyle of a writer. So, 
you need kind of peace and quiet in the morning and you need someone who could kind of um you know that means also you probably need to go to sleep early so so you don't want to be with somebody who's out partying till midnight every night um you know it's probably not healthy to be with an alcoholic as an example because that will create undue stress for your writing uh it might be material later after you end it with that person but it certainly won't help your writing then i can guarantee that um yeah, you just need you need to kind of eliminate anybody who's like, being a writer is very difficult. It's not, you know, people always say, "Oh, do what you love." Uh, writing is not something people really love. It's really painful and frustrating, and and it's you do it because you, it's like you have to do it, and uh, and that's a cliche. So I I don't know a different way to say it though. But um, you know you you. Uh, you write because you know you, you you think you're good at it. You think you have something to say. You think you could be entertaining. You think this is a, 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 a an interesting way to make money and to make a living. You think it's a pathway to perhaps other careers. There's a lot of reasons to write, but it's very hard and very um, everything has to line up and and relationships most important has to line up and be conducive. Like you know. Someone has to, they don't have to read your writing. They don't have to edit it. They don't have to, um, uh, you know, they just have to not be disappointed if you're not there at 8 a.m. because you're writing. And they have to uh, be supportive of your successes. They can't be jealous of your success. That could be a problem. I've had that as well. And, 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 you know, two writers are often hard to be together because if they're not, truly supportive of each other if if one's going to be jealous that that ruins the whole thing and then in terms of professional relationships that benefit you as a writer how do you think about or approach developing and cultivating and maintaining those i mean people like clinton i get it was a charity poker tournament you get a photograph you probably you know didn't get his cell number you're not like a deep connection maybe with him maybe you are but with with other people too yeah. that, i mean you had a lot of podcast guests how do you stay in relationship in a way that's like meaningful you know it's funny because a lot of times i'll have a podcast guest and i want to stay in a meaningful relationship but i often don't um you know they're they're busy they're on to other things and you know my podcast was just a stop for them but some people i stay in touch with but really you know Every every artist, uh, and I don't mean to, you know, act like art is some special thing. But if you're trying to do something artistic, like writing or whatever, every or even business, if you want to be good at something, you kind of need a scene. So let's take computers in the '70s. It's not like Bill Gates came out of nowhere, Steve Jobs came out of nowhere, Steve Wozniak came out of nowhere, Paul Allen came out of nowhere. They all hung out with the homebrew club in the San, San Francisco, which was a, which is a home computing club in the seventies. And they all knew each other. They had a scene, you know, the head of Atari was in that scene. The head of Osborne computer was in that scene. Uh, they, they all knew each other. They, they could call each other on the phone and, and discuss things. Um, the, 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 the literary world of the 1950s was the beat movement, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg and William S. Burroughs. Well, guess what? 
They all took classes together. They all hung out with each other. They all helped each other edit their books. The art scene, you know, you had Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg. They lived in the same building. And Leo Costello, would the, the, the gallery owner or the dealer, would visit them. And so they had a scene. And that scene created the art world of the, the 40s and, and, and 50s. Andy Warhol created the pop art scene. You know, Warhol, uh, Larry Rivers, Roy Lichtenstein. They, they were a scene. They all knew each other. Andy Warhol was going to try to do pointillist work on kitschy cartoons. And then he saw Roy Lichtenstein was doing it. So he developed his other thing, the Campbell soup cans. So you kind of grow up as a scene. And so I feel like it's important to grow up with other you know, as you develop your skills, you know, join writers groups on social media, write for other publications. Like I, I wrote for many publications, like whether they were finance publications or self-help, I tried to write for as many publications as possible. So I would build my scene across many different types of writing. And uh, it's, a, it's important to, to build your scene. Yeah, that's, that's, that's such a great concept. I mean, when I, when, when I was writing Choose Yourself, I would call three best-selling authors all the time. Tucker Max, Ryan Holiday, Kamal Ravikant, uh, and plus other people in the in a kind of uh, next circle beyond them. And, and uh, you know, but it had taken years to develop a scene. No, I, I can see, you know, why that would be so powerful. Okay, so last two questions. The first one is for anyone listening who is I say where you want to be, meaning that you're a published author who people read and that they enjoy it and benefit from your writing. So for people who are either, they aspire to that, but it's, you know, they're, they don't necessarily believe, you know, it's possible for them, or maybe they're taking steps toward that, but they're, they're feeling stuck somehow, or they're not sure if it's worth to worth it to keep going. What advice or encouragement do you have for people in that situation? Are we talking specifically about writing? Yeah, as people who want to see their words on pages, and I say words as writing, it could be they want to do a podcast, they want to do a TED Talk, they want to speak from stages otherwise. All right, but let's say writing. Yeah, thought, that's right. Writing and thought leadership, maybe. Okay, because writing could lead to the other things. So, so uh, it's just I, I'm just making this up on the fly, but it's sort of basically what I did. Uh, again, 1% a day, so there's no pressure. You don't have to... If you sit down and write page one of a novel, you might not ever finish that novel. There's no pressure. It's great that you wrote one page today of a novel um, or a nonfiction book or a LinkedIn article um, or whatever. But anyway, 1% a day in these three areas, you got to read. So you got to whatever you got to read nonfiction and you got to read fiction. So the reason you got to read fiction is because the best writing comes from fiction writers. But like anything, 99% of fiction is poor, poorly written. So read the best fiction writers you can find, the, the, the fiction that excites you. Um, you got to read nonfiction because you only have your one life. You might as well learn from the lives of others. So read as much nonfiction as possible so you learn from everyone else's life. Um, so every day I try to read nonfiction and I try to read fiction. And I also try to read a little bit of kind of self-help or spiritual books. Um and then you got to write every day. The only way to get better at something is to do it. You can't get better at stand-up comedy if you don't go on stage and be a stand-up comic. You can't get better at the 40-yard dash unless you run the 40-yard dash every day. So uh, you got to do it. 
So you gotta you gotta write every day. Write three hundred words. Write two hundred words. Write nothing but sit in front of a blank screen and I don't know. Write write your past twenty meals down. You gotta write. You can't you can't actually have writer's block. If you're having writer's block, just write your last meal and tell us a story about that. You know, you and I have just been talking for we didn't have we've been talking for what two and a half hours. We didn't have talkers block, so don't. You don't have to have writer's block. I could have taken any minute of this and just written it down. And it would have been uh, a couple hundred words. So, you know, you have to write every day. And then, you know, every day I try to build my scene. Like, oh, today even, I wrote to a magazine and I said, oh, this article I just wrote might fit your magazine. I haven't heard a response. I may never hear a response. But if I do two of those emails every day, that's over 700 of those emails a year. I need just a 1% response rate and I'm writing in seven new magazines a year. Over 10 years, I'm writing in 70 publications. Now everybody in the world is going to know who I am. Everywhere they look, they're going to see, oh, there's another article by James. And what's he doing in this magazine? There's another article by him. So... That's what happens, um, and and it works. That technique works. So th- those are things. And then what what happens after that is you'll start getting better, and you'll start publishing. And you'll, by the way, you could even publish bad stuff. Nobody really knows the difference. You just start publishing, and uh, 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 and then you can decide what to do. When once you start publishing, you're more likely to be asked to uh, do a TED talk. You're more likely to be asked to do a podcast or go on other people's podcasts or give talks for corporations. You can get a speaking agent. Um, so, you know, one thing keeps, keeps leading to another. I really love that. And I love the everyday nature. This is not, clearly this is not for people who are dabbling. This is people who are committed. Yeah. But, but also you might write for a hundred days and then someone might say, Hey, I really like those first three articles you did. Here's, would you, do you want to do this job? And we'll give you like a lot of money and opportunities and, You'll say, okay, and then you'll stop writing. Like writing did it's what for you what you wanted it to do, and that's it. Yeah, and you choose yourself in that and every moment. Yeah, like like David Letterman was a stand-up comic, and I've never seen him do stand-up comedy. I only know him as, you know, he did the, for 30 years a David Letterman show. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so my final question, and some of it you maybe touched on or covered in, in that answer, which I think is is really beautiful is so we talked about if there was kind of one thing which was three things and they lead to something that somebody did when it comes to writing to further their career complete their projects what would you say what advice or encouragement would you give to somebody even if they're just starting out when it comes to marketing well that's a good question because again marketing was was really difficult for me when i was using you know the standard marketing tactics you know and marketing is a science that changes every year uh and and marketing a product might be different than marketing writing um for marketing writing i think the key is uh two things one is if you write a book start the 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 day you finish your first book start your second book because the best marketing for your first book is if your second book is a bestseller and then people will go back and buy the first book but the other thing is write for as many publications as possible. Write for LinkedIn, write for Medium, write for Huffington Post, write for Thrive Global. Those are sort of open platforms, but then write for, I don't know, whatever it is, 
Inc. or the Yoga Journal or Men's Health or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or, you know, I, I'm naming big brands, but there's there's a, a billion websites that you can write for depending on what your interests are, um, you know, write for some obscure golf site uh, or write for some fantasy sports site if that's your thing. Uh, uh, so, so just that, you know, a, that's how you build your scene and B, that's how you build your audience. You're never going to build your audience from, or, or very rarely will you build your audience these days from writing a book and then some suddenly everyone reads it. Like name me a, like, uh, here's, here's a challenge. Name me a popular author who first published, let's say in the past five years. Well, that's about or, the window. Or, or, well, or, or ten years. Ten years. I was going to say that's about the window of Ryan Holiday's career. About ten years, right? Okay. So, so, but Ryan Holiday was already writing a lot of blogs that were popular, and he was writing for Observer dot com. He was writing on Medium or LinkedIn or his blog. Yeah. Uh, Tim Tim Ferriss had like Tim dot blog, and uh, his blog was huge before the Four Hour Work Week came out. Yeah. Tucker Max is another great example. What about his James blog- Clear? Uh. James Clear had a huge blog, still does, has a huge blog before Atomic Habits came out. Like, he, people would always, I, I mean, I knew, I, I would run into James at conferences. He hadn't written a book yet, but his blog was getting millions of visitors a month. So, uh, you know, uh, Yuval Harari, Sapiens, he had a, an extremely popular course on Coursera, uh, that, and then that turned into the book Sapiens. So, you know, you just you, you you're not going to get your marketing start from the book. You have to just be everywhere. Yeah, that that makes sense. And and it's kind of again the proof of overnight success usually takes about fifteen years or so. Yeah, and it doesn't have to. By the way, like that, that's also kind of a thing people say is, oh, my overnight success uh, took fifteen years. But you could have successes along the way, so that it, it like. You're not going to be able to get to those 15 years if it's all failure and then suddenly in 15 years of success. You'll have successes along the way if you're if you're working at it. Yeah. You know, the very last thing that I want to ask, it's, it's kind of a two-part question because the first part is about you – and I, I might be getting this a little bit wrong, but it, my understanding is that you ask a question of yourself every day or you make a commitment to save a life. And, and I, I'm interested to know a little bit more about that, but I also want to tie it to anybody who's listening and especially who's now listened to this two, two and a half hours or however long this is edited, that if they wanted to make a show of gratitude to you or you and me for having made this and hopefully it's helped them on their journey in some way, that was also somehow perhaps inspired by your commitment to save a life. What's something that you hope a listener would do, even if you never knew about it, like help an old person, you know, old lady cross the street or do something kind for a neighbor. What would, what do you say about that? I, I don't know, because again, you can't clean the world before you clean your room. So I would say all going all the way back to the beginning of this podcast, you know, take care of yourself, maybe a little bit better tomorrow than you did today. And look, one percent better, just one yeah. percent. And by the way, it's not like I'm great at this like i'm trying to do this too like this is we're all human so you know some people seem superhuman and seem to have magically you know come to this earth with superpowers so they're perfect already but like i'm very imperfect and so it's a challenge to try to clean my room every day and i mean that metaphorically but uh that's that's all really what's the thing about saving a life well like for instance if i post something on instagram don't just, I'm not just going to post some like 
cute little picture or whatever. I want it to be meaningful and again both and entertaining so people look at it and are amused or 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 shocked or interested or intrigued and i want it to be have a point um and the point should be something not immediately obvious even if it was a quote someone said 100 years ago it's got to be something that intrigued me that i want to live my life by and and i think other people it gives permission other people will say, oh, well, he's doing this. I should, I, I could do this. I didn't think I could do this, but I could do this. So that, I think that, you know, helps. I, I always think that writing, say, if you're doing it right, writing should save a life, even if it just entertains. Hey, sometimes we need to be entertained. Life is pretty hard. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, again, I just want to say thank you for sharing so, so generously I've really enjoyed this and I've learned a lot and I'm taking away a lot of inspiration and I suspect that those listening will have too. And I hope that if they didn't already know who you were, that they continue that journey of growth and, and inspiration by listening to your podcast as well. And well, if you that, ever find yourself in Salt Lake, I hope, uh, I hope you let me know. You're always welcome well, as a guest in my home. Thank you. And uh, again, I don't really go on any podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. And, and uh, you know, I was really happy to, to come on here. And we had a great conversation. You're a great interviewer. Um, are you ever in New York City? I am. I'll be there a couple times before the end of the summer. Oh, excellent. Well, uh, let me know. I'm, um, I'm out a little in July. I'm taking one of my kids to London for a kind of a camp and... Put around most of the summer, and then awesome. you'll have to you have to come by my. Uh, I, you know, I own a comedy club, so you have to come by and uh, that's right. Check it out. I would I would love to do that. I I appreciate that that invitation, um, and I hope your tour. I know that Salt Lake is um, is not the booming metropolis that some of your other cities might be, but I I hope your your comedy tour happens through Salt Lake. If so, uh, let me know, and I'll help you get the word out a little bit. Yeah, that would be great because I'm doing in June. I'm doing L.A., Boston and Cleveland. So there's no reason why Salt Lake can't be, event, you know, the, the fall is really where I'm going to go around, but no reason why that can't, can't happen. Yeah, that would be fun. Thanks so much. I really appreciate this. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Take care. And uh, I'll look forward to the time we connect again next. Excellent. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Take care. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.